The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the MJ Cast, our premiere for season two. My name's Jamin Bull and I'm here with my co-host Q and special guests Andy Healy and Charles Thompson. We've got a jam-packed show for you guys today. We're going to be talking all about Off the Wall being reissued as a CD and Blu-ray set. A new MJ101 book on Off the Wall. Miguel performing a Michael Jackson tribute at the upcoming Grammys. The Jacksons performing at Art on Ice in Switzerland. Joseph Fiennes playing Michael Jackson in an upcoming 9-11 film. And an update on the Sarova vs. Casio lawsuit. We'll also be talking about a million leaks from the Dangerous era and a new book called The Dangerous Philosophies coming soon. All today on The MJ Cast. Q, how are you doing? Good morning. Welcome to season two, Jamin. I'm so excited. We've had a couple of months off, but we're back in the saddle. Yeah, I was starting to miss it a little bit. Yeah, me too. It's been like, a, yeah, an interesting couple of months. Really, really good though to recharge and get our batteries ready to go again for another season. Yeah, totally. And we've got some other guests with us today. Absolutely. We've got a regular guest, Charles Thompson, and we've also got... A new guest, Andy from MJ101. Hello, guys. Hi. How are you doing, Charles? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, really good. <laughs> it's a bit late there for you, isn't it, in London? It is 11.15 p.m. Yeah, our time zones never work out with anyone in UK at all. <laughs> it's always so cruel. Uh, I feel sorry for you, Charles. So thanks a lot for being here. It's no problem at all. I'm a bit of a a night owl anyway, so... Um, Don't tell us that. We'll keep you up all night. <laughs> well, you do anyway. Oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> so we've had, um, you know, since our last couple of months off, we've actually, you know, gained a lot of new listeners on iTunes who haven't actually heard a new episode of the MJ Cast come out in their time uh, listening to us. So they might not be as familiar with you, Charles, as, as we'd think. So would you be able to give our audience a bit of a rundown on who you are and what you do and why you're an MJ fan? Uh, okay. Well, in terms of uh, who I am and what I do, I am a reporter in England. I work for a regional newspaper in England as a court reporter and investigative reporter. I sit in on murder trials, child abuse trials, etc. I'm best known to Michael Jackson fans because um, I wrote an article in the Huffington Post on the fifth anniversary of the verdicts in the Michael Jackson trial called One of the Most Shameful Episodes in Journalistic History. And that was a 5,000-word analysis of the media's reporting of the Michael Jackson trial, which compared that reporting to the transcripts of what was going on in the courtroom to demonstrate that the reporting was completely biased and uh, misleading. In terms of how I became a Michael Jackson fan, I was about seven years old at primary school and I went to my friend Michael's house and he had on VHS the uh, history video collection, History Volume 1, and uh, he played that video while I was at his house. 
and I immediately came home and begged my parents to get me a copy and I got one for Christmas and um, there was no turning back after that. Two <laughs> years later I saw him uh, live on the history tour. I was nine years old, I saw him at Wembley Stadium and I saw him twice more after that. I saw him at the 2006 World Music Awards which I wrote an article about on my blog uh, because it was wrongly reported that he was booed off stage and I also saw him at the 2009 this is it concert announcement at the O2. Awesome, such co- it's so cool to hear um, hear your origins as a fan because we often people know you obviously as the Huffington Post writer, uh, but yeah, it's just so cool to hear about how you actually became a fan in the first place. But I also understand you're uh, a big Prince fan as well, not just a fan of uh, Michael Jackson. I'm a huge Prince fan. Last year he played a concert in London and I queued outside for ten hours. I've seen him six times. And whenever he comes to England, I'm there. I think he's a total genius. Yeah, incredible performer. And, and as I understand, Q, you were up pretty early as well trying to trying to get um, Prince tickets. Oh, no. I was trying to set up an account because he just announced yesterday that in like two weeks he'll be playing here in Perth, which is insane. So I was like, oh, cool. Now I have to figure out what my password is for that Ticket Tech account. But apparently I didn't even have a Ticket Tech account, so I had to just set one up. <laughs> Charles, I've just realised you're younger than me. You're very accomplished. Am I? How old are you, Q? Older than you. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know you're older than me? Because you just told me how old you were when you went to the History concert. Oh, how old were you when you went to the History concert? A couple of years older. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think Moving I'm... on. <laughs> Hello, Andy. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Hello over to the USA. So Andy is, I think, um, I think probably best known for your incredible, incredible Michael Jackson 101 book series, your ebook series, which are stunning. And a new one was just released this week. But did you want to tell us a little about yourself and about your your incredible book series and some other stuff that you might have worked on and how you became an MJ fan? Sure. Uh, the Let's start at the beginning. The uh, I became a fan of MJ back in 79 uh, when Off the Wall was released. I heard Don't Stop Till You Get Enough on the radio and uh, pretty much that day went out and got, oh, not that day, but when the album came out, went out and got the vinyl. And yeah, had basically been a fan since then. Fortunate enough to have seen Michael on the uh, Bad Tour, uh, four shows of the History Tour, and did have tickets for for This Is It, but we all know how that played out. My uh, association in terms of doing the MJ 101 series, first book, MJ 101 Greatest Songs, was published, or released rather, in uh, 2013, and then since then I've just been doing supplements, uh, little add-on um, e-books to, uh, to cover off various other items in terms of his career, uh, short films, remixes, the history album, and recently Off the Wall. Yeah, and what an amazing series it is, Andy. I think it's incredible. I really want to just give you some props, mate, because I think you're just a total class act. The... Um, the books themselves, the ebooks, are just full of beautiful, high-resolution images. The the layout of the text, everything is just absolutely stunning and a real pleasure to engage with, especially on a, an iPad or something like that, where everything's displayed so clearly. It's a oh yeah, my iPad Air, it's gorgeous. Thank you. 
I want to ask you, I've been meaning to ask you for um, a little while about this actually, but you've got an interesting sort of model on your website when somebody goes there to actually access an MJ101 ebook to download to their device. Um, obviously, they're all free in a sense, except that they've got to pay in a certain way and they, they pay with uh, uh, getting the word out on social media. So when you go to download it, the site asks you to tweet out or, or put a Facebook post up about this to get the word out. How come you chose that model instead of money? Because, I mean, the, the products are so incredible. I'd be totally willing to, to pay for them. Uh, I do have a running joke with my wife that uh, if I charged, uh, let's say, I don't know, $5 or $10 for a book, I'd probably have earned to, to date probably about $10. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I doubt that. So, uh, no, I mean, my intent was always to, you know, this is just one fan's point of view, trying to, you know, engage other fans in discussion about the music. And my aim was always just to produce them and release them and let everybody access them for free. The the pay with a tweet thing came about just as a way of basically trying to get the word out. And it's only on two of the five books that are currently available. And I keep going back and forth whether it's a, uh, a good thing or a bad thing. But, you know, I've had a pretty positive response from, from people thinking that it's a, a fair trade to just tweet about the book and uh, get a free copy. So, yeah. I think it's more than a fair trade. And we are always happy to let people know about your stuff um, and when there's a new release, like there has been this week with the Off the Wall ebook. But if anyone heads over to mj101series.com, you will see the full collection and you can download those with a click and enjoy them because, yeah, I love them. They're just beautiful. And I, I really sort of wish that you got more props for them, really. Like, I would be quite happy to see you in the Off the Wall documentary talking about Michael's work. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know whether I'm that qualified <laughs> as, uh, as some of the people, but maybe, I don't know, who knows. But, uh, you know, it's just, as I say, it's just kind of, you know, one fan's um, passion and commitment about the music of Michael and trying to get the focus back onto it because uh, for me, for too many years, there were other things that seemed to to dominate the actual artistry and music that he produced. So it was just, you know, my gentle nudge to kind of get it back in that direction. Well, I think it certainly helped. In addition to the, like the incredible content of what you write it's the the visual appearance of the of the books that i find just stunning like the the attention to detail with typography text placement image placement like i've got to ask like how calculated is all of that like how much work do you put into the how the books appear yeah my background uh is advertising i've worked in advertising for 15 odd years so i kind of have an eye for for kind of design and i'm a copywriter by trade so yeah when i was laying you know you as you kind of see each edition of the books kind of come out they they go from a fairly classic with mj 101 sort of structure through to more visual uh impacts of like the off the wall and the history mm. um and even the remixes, I think that was the turning point where I went full page on them uh, with the images and just trying to give people, yeah, as much a uh, sensory reward to, uh, to flicking through and, and reading my, uh, my observations on the tracks. Yeah, Jamin raves about the typography and <laughs> all the, the visual stuff quite often yeah, on I, our phone calls. Aesthetically, I find the series to just be so, like you said, rewarding, just sitting there with an iPad and especially like you know, with a retina display where you can't distinguish the pixels and seeing these incredible like photos from the era. And you, you often choose, well, pretty much always choose photos that match what you're talking about. I think your, your books would be 
especially good for people like new fans who may be discovering these photo shoots for the first time while they're reading about these things that you write about. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a plethora of um, of great shots of Michael, um, you know, dating back from the Jackson Five days all the way through. So it is kind of that challenge of wanting to present something visually that's just you know impactful and and inviting to people to really have the you know really draw them into to the experience and hopefully you know they're listening to off the wall while they're, they're reading the book and, um, or, you know, they're, they're listening to the tracks in 101 and kind of queuing up each song as they, and I just wanted it to kind of be that fully immersive experience, both rich visually and, um, hopefully with a strong narrative as well. I actually totally did that with the history album. I had each track queued up and I listened to it as I read the history album, but for the off the wall album, I didn't have, um, my music, I didn't have headphones with me, that's right, and so I couldn't do that, but I actually found I didn't even need to. Like, you quote the lyrics, and that's all it takes for the song just to fully form in my head, and I was, like, singing along as, a, like, your lyrics were in the book when you were using it as a quote. So it was, the yeah, so rich that I actually didn't even need the music, but that, the, with the music is a really great way to read through them. Yeah, I actually have tried my best to actually structure the writing of it to the actual pace of the, the song that I'm talking about. So hopefully when I'm talking about the bridge of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, that's when it's playing for you in real time. So it's kind of written and paced in, the, in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, unless you're a speed reader, you're kind of messing it up for me. <laughs> but um, but that, that's been my aim so that, so that you didn't have to kind of you know, go back and go, okay, he's talking about the bridge here, but it hasn't happened or it's already happened or, you know, I'm trying to pace it with the actual song. So it's probably no coincidence that your latest edition is all about off the wall then, I guess. How long has it been out for now? Uh, just uh, released it, I think, February the 5th. So I think it's only been like a week, just over a week now. Yeah, so just a few weeks before the um, the new product comes out for fans to enjoy, so... What an awesome companion to the set we're about to get. And that might lead us into our first news item, I think, of the uh, of, of today's show. And it's all about Off the Wall, obviously, coming out very shortly. There was a press release that came out from Sony and uh, the Michael Jackson estate telling us that Off the Wall is to be reissued as a CD and Blu-ray set and also a CD and DVD set for those of you who like DVDs. And that's to come out on February 26th this month. Um, so might ask Charles how Charles how are you feeling about this uh this off the wall reissue are you excited about it or uh no <laughs> um <laughs> I mean I have uh, I have plenty of copies of off the wall already from the previous re-releases remastered versions etc the only thing that really was of interest to me was the documentary which I watched the other day and um probably won't watch again <laughs> yeah and we'll cover that probably a little bit later in the show we're going to talk about that as our main discussion topic but yeah it was uh and i i didn't mind it i thought it was an interesting thing to watch i am interested mainly when i think about the the set itself being released as you know a cd and dvd or blu-ray set one of the obvious exclusions from the set is any kind of extra material um like demos or you know, like extended mixes, remixes, acapellas, instrumentals, anything like that. There's none of that on there. It's just the album sort of as it was originally released being put out there with this documentary. And really Sony are asking fans that have bought this album to buy it again to get this to get this documentary. 
And I don't know how I really feel about that. In in a sense, I actually am really excited about this coming out because it means new fans that have never bought Off the Wall will be able to get it in a pretty good set, uh, including this uh, this documentary. And is that kind of how you feel, Q? Or? Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't have a huge urge or need to get it because, like Charles, I've got so many versions of Off the Wall. Like, you know, from vinyl all the way through the the was it two thousand and one re-release which actually had uh, interviews with uh, Rod Temperton and Quincy Jones, a new booklet and then it also had a bonus material of the demos for both Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and Working Day and Night, uh, the demos from 1978. So even that had some bonus stuff on it and this one has nothing except for the package that is different. And chalk, <laughs> inexplicably chalk. Like I get that there's chalk on the cover of the album, but they actually have it so you can open the CD up. And it is only a CD size package. It looks really large on the the video for it, but it's actually only CD size. So you open it up and you use your chalk to draw on it. I can't think of any of my Michael memorabilia and um, products that I have that I would want to draw on with even it is chalk that you can rub off but I don't want to draw so I can't figure out where that's come from I don't know maybe that was a leftover marketing thing from the 2009 release that they cancelled or 2008 whenever they had it up on the the official Michael site before this is it took over everything yeah it was a week before a week it before, ripped down. Yeah, yeah, then it was complete. So maybe that was something that was going to be part of that re-release. I don't, I don't get it. I wouldn't have got it then. I'm not going to get it now. I mean, I don't get the chalk concept then, so I still don't understand it now. So I don't know. I haven't fully decided, but yeah, there's just nothing for me. It, I, I have to say, I do like the packaging, except for the chalk. I think the colours and the the packaging is really nice from what I've seen on the video. I think they did a – I love the colours, especially of the um, artwork for the documentary, which we spoke about on an earlier yeah. show in season one. I do love that artwork a lot. So, And the packaging, like even for Bad 25 box set, was quite nice. So I don't know. I wish there was extras on it. I really do. I just wish – even if it was, yeah, these extras that we've got, I'm sure they could found some other things to put on it. They said there was nothing to put on it. It's very true. Andy, what do you what do you think about this product? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with what everyone's saying. The completest in me will obviously go out and buy it. And I think that's part of the, you know what what Sony kind of banks on that that generational fans will will go out and buy it for the umpteenth time. You know, there there were missed opportunities as you know, it's been discussed. There's the Don't Stop Till You Get Enough demo, Working Day and Night demo. We've got She's Out of My Life uh, demo as well that's been released. That there would have a, been incredible. There is a demo for I Can't Help It. So they could have easily packaged together um, demos that are readily available. They could have done, you know, not many fans, well, potentially not many fans know that the album actually was uh, released initially without claps on... Um, off the wall and also um, uh, what's the other song that they, they did a, they went back in basically and, and 
did little touches to to the album as they would go on to do with Bad um, as well. So the album um, that I listen to most is the actual first ever pressing of the of the album of Off the Wall, which to me feels a little bit more organic and and has a more kind of lush feel to it. When they went back in and did some um, overdubs on various tracks, they kind of filled out some songs that you know, to me, didn't necessarily need it. But, uh, yeah, I think there would have been opportunities to include those original mixes and, and just make it more of a, a journey of, of Michael during that period. Andy, can I ask about those original versions, which I only learnt about reading your book, the Off the Wall 101 book. Is that really can only be found on vinyl? No, it's because uh, I've got it on CD as well. So the first CD issue, uh, at least in Australia, had the original mix of the oh, album wow. as well. Okay. So, yeah, so I've got it on CD, uh, obviously cassette and vinyl. So um, it, it should be should be around and, uh, you know, I think you can easily search YouTube now and, and people have uploaded the the two kind of different mixes and whether or not you are a fan of the claps on rock with you or stuff like that it's you know all up to i guess how you first experience the album yeah i definitely want to hear that i don't think i've heard those original versions before interestingly but i think i did read something about that on um on the mj archives the facebook page the facebook group and look i've got to ask i've seen some discussion on there about the quality of the sound as well. I've seen some fans say that this, I don't know much about it, but this mix apparently is not as high fidelity or as high quality as what we got on that lossless 2001 reissue. Have you, do you know much about that, Andy? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's been debate about, um, I think there was a press release put out on a website that talked about it uh, being, they've used upgraded mastered for iTunes masters. Some people have taken that as being a, um, you know, not as strong as potentially the 2001 special editions that most people kind of talk about as being the, the best sonically sounding version of the album. You know, mastered for iTunes is a mastering technique, I guess, that that is mostly aimed, as the name suggests, for iTunes, for digital uh, downloads and streaming. So I don't know whether or not they would have been using that for the actual physical CD release, but I guess time will tell and we'll be able to kind of compare and contrast. It has been noted, though, that for most people, whether or not you'll be able to tell any differences between the 2001 Special Edition or you know, a Mastered for iTunes download may not be that noticeable. We're going to be talking later about the uh, the documentary, the Spike Lee film, which has everyone had a chance to watch? Sure have. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Excellent. I, I did think of one, one thing to do with this album because it, it really like strikes me as odd. I, I just have to say, like it really strikes me as odd that the album is coming out with in such a bare bones kind of state and it's made me think about why that might actually be and and I'm I'm trying to figure out why there's no demos why there's no instrumentals and why it is just the album by itself and just with the documentary and it got me thinking about the people around the album that may not be seeing eye to eye with the estate at the moment we know that Quincy Jones for example who produced um the off the wall album hasn't been featured in Bad 25 or the the new off-the-wall documentary in terms of new interviews that he's recorded. And we also know that there's been some some um, legal issues between him and, the, um, and also Sony Music. 
so I'm just wondering whether whether that, for example, and then the demos, we know Randy and Janet Jackson are on those demos and they don't exactly see eye to eye with the estate. Could some of these relationships that are happening and some of the legal issues around them have have made, is it possible that they're blocking maybe these songs releases so that that's why we're seeing such a bare bones package? What do you think about that, Charles? It is certainly notable that Quincy Jones in particular has not featured in Bad 25 and has not featured in the Off the Wall documentary or what they've, they've included him in archive, but he's not contributed. I'm not sure whether the reason for that is because he's suing the estate for royalties or it may well be for um, health reasons, I think, because he he's still quite active and he does crop up here and there and do question and answer sessions and that sort of thing. But if you watch his televised interviews in recent years, then on occasion he does seem to be slightly confused. He doesn't remember things. Like as somebody who knows a lot about the albums and about Michael Jackson, you're listening to Quincy's interviews and he's getting it all wrong. So I don't know whether maybe he's losing his memory or something. But um, in terms of these disputes blocking the release of those demos, I don't think so. I think I think Sony has the rights to all that stuff, I'm pretty sure. In fact, there was there's a fan called Waldo, and he said that when Thriller 25 came out, Michael didn't even realize that the demos were on that package. He thought it was just remixes. And he, he said to Michael, you know, I, I heard the Hot Street demo or something, and Michael was like, how did you hear that? And he said, what do you mean, how did I hear it? It's on Thriller 25, and Michael went ballistic. He was furious. So I think Sony is certainly, as a result of the deal that it struck with the estate after... Michael died I think it has the right to release all that stuff if it wants to and and it was included in the documentary the uh, don't stop you get enough demo I just don't know what the reason is for not including it I mean the cynic in me says probably because they're planning on doing off the wall 40 in about three years time and uh, and then they want us to buy it all over again Mm. (laughs) well I I'm, I'm probably going to I'll be honest I'm probably going to buy it I don't want to buy it but I probably will because I want that documentary on Blu-ray. I wish it was out there as a standalone thing because I, I, I would prefer to have to you know to go and buy that documentary for twenty or thirty dollars as a standalone Blu-ray. But as it stands, I'm probably going to have to spend you know thirty-five to forty Australian dollars to get the set with the album that I don't really want again. But hmm. is it not coming out as a digital documentary release? That's a good question. iTunes or something maybe Netflix. Bad 25 did, did come out on iTunes as a standalone film, so that's possible as well. I like to kind of own the physical thing, though. I like, like, I'm all about digital for sure, but like, when it comes to Michael, I love having the physical product. So, ah, oh well. Yeah, there's nothing like opening up, like, hang on, here we go. Opening up the CD case and pulling out the little booklet and flicking through and getting, like, you know, the, the images or the lyrics or something like that. I love that about all the products. What What are you guys' favorite tracks on Off the Wall? My favorites would be Rock With You, Working Day and Night, Get On The Floor, and She's Out Of My Life, and Burn This Disco Out. How about Charles? What's your favorite tracks off the album? Um, definitely uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is um, is probably my absolute favorite, but I think... I actually really, really love It's the Falling in Love. That's 
I just adore that song and um I can't help it as well is a massive favorite. Mm. Uh oh and Working Day and Night of course which is just phenomenal. I just love that song and it's incredible when you think about how young Michael was when he wrote Working Day and Night and Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and how complex they are in terms of the arrangements you have this just layer on top of layer on top of layer of rhythm and it's all there in his demos as well. Really fantastically complex songs i just think they're fantastic how about yourself there andy yeah so uh for me definitely don't stop uh working day and night get on the floor and i can't help it they're kind of like the the key standout tracks for me that have kind of um you know test the stood the test of time just looking at the michael tracks so don't stop to get enough working day and night and get on the floor that he penned or co-wrote you just kind of get to see an artist who you, you get the feeling of has learnt so much in his career and has kind of had all these ideas brewing and has kind of said, okay, here's my opportunity to kind of put them all down. And Jamin? Girlfriend. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Not <Okay>. really. <laughs> okay. Um, no, my favourite song on Off The Wall. Well, i got two. So definitely Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. I think it's one of Michael's most seminal pieces ever. It's absolutely timeless. and Without down just brilliant to listen to it draws people to the dance floor even today and probably always will and i think um in terms of a really unique song i think i can't help it is just stunning it's probably one of the own it's probably the i think quincy jones said this at some point but it's probably the closest michael jackson ever got to recording a proper jazz song and it's there's a mood in that song that's in no other Michael song that I can think of. And yeah, it's just incredible. There's also a great um, Beyonce cover version of that song at one of her concerts she did a few years ago that I might put in the show notes. But um, I think it was just after he passed away in about, uh, you know, 2009, late 2009, something like that. She did, I, and I, I don't know if it's acapella, but yeah, she did a, a live version of I Can't Help It at one of her tours. I'll have to go check that out. It was it was very good. It's fan shot. It's not like professionally shot or anything, but the audio is is beautiful. It's it'll give you goosebumps. It's really really hauntingly beautiful. This of course isn't his first solo album though, is it? There's what four five. There's got to be there in seventy two. Ben in seventy two. Music mm-hmm. and me in seventy three. Forever Michael in seventy five. That were all solo albums prior to this so don't start your michael discography right from off the wall because there's four other solo albums out there prior to this one yeah so and actually the uh the the official press release for um for this new reissue of off the wall made some big big errors. errors i think it said that this was his first solo album and it also said that uh, Don't Stop You Getting Off was his first solo number one, both totally incorrect. Yeah, that was also in the official Facebook um, post about the album. And I, I actually emailed the um, the guy in charge of the MJ online team, Jeff, and I let him know about it. And he said he was, he, he actually replied and told me that he was going to get the people who wrote it. He was going to tell the people who wrote it what had gone wrong. And apparently the MJ online team didn't even write that press release. It was Sony that wrote it. So... Yeah, it's unfortunate that there's those factual errors out there, but it just feels the fire of, like, there's a lot of fans out there that have the opinion that Sony 
try to build this narrative that Michael's solo career started in the late 70s after he left Motown just to kind of maximise their their own sort of catalogue of his work. The truth is that, that Michael did have a solo career before he went to Epic Records, an amazing solo career with um, number one hits, Oscar performances, brilliant songs. So I think those definitely deserve um, credit where they're due, like Q's saying. I think the distinction that, um, you know, that I think people are trying to make is that it is his first solo album where he's under, you know, it's under his direction. It's kind of his adult coming-of-age album where all the Motown solo albums definitely uh, have got a lot of great material there and showed the development of the artist. It's, you know, his first opportunity to kind of say, okay, I'm writing songs that I'm going to record. I'm going to co-produce the album. I'm going to work with Quincy on on tracks. I'm going to you know, present myself to to a new audience, hopefully in a new way that that, as you know, we know he was trying to do, get people to forget about the little, you know, wonder kid from the Jackson Five and really focus on himself as a mature contemporary artist. There's a there is a beautiful collection which came out ironically five days after Michael passed away, and it's called. Hello World, and it was issued by um, I think Hippo Select, which is this great label that that digs out old stuff that's kind of forgotten and then um, puts it back out. They did a fan, and they and everything they release is like a collector's edition. Everything they produce is stunningly packaged. They did a fantastic collection called the James Brown Singles, which was eleven double disc sets, um, and I have that whole thing up in my room. They're all and um, the. Hello World uh, set is this kind of yellow hardback book with um, three CDs in it, which collect together all of Michael's solo Motown songs, but package it with this beautiful uh, booklet full of photographs with really in-depth liner notes as well. And um, it's well worth getting a copy if you can. It's just it's such a beautiful set. I agree. It is. It's an incredible set. I have that. It's a one of my favourites, and it really fleshes out your your iTunes library or your, <laughs> your collection in general with a lot of music. And it's yeah, some, yeah. Oh my god, it's beautiful packaging, and then the collection itself is so thorough. It's really incredible. Yeah, I've got that one. I went and bought it after MJ passed. I went on like a massive Michael Jackson buying spree and bought like everything I didn't own. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the things I got. And oh, I think one of the, my favorite songs on that set was a song that he recorded just before Off the Wall came out um, called, have you guys heard We're Almost There? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that song. I reckon that song, I would, if I had to pinpoint where, where I felt Michael grew creatively to another level as a solo artist, I would actually pinpoint that song more so than Off the Wall as the beginning of him as an, adult mature solo artist but uh yeah beautiful set there is actually there's another set which was by the same people hippo select called um rare pearls i don't know if you have that that's the jackson five uh that's a jackson five box set with a bunch of kind of obscure um songs again i think three cds worth maybe two cds i forget but it's that is a, an even more incredible uh, box set. So beautiful the way it's produced. And when you buy these uh, sets from Hippo Select, and they're so stunningly put together with so much care, 
and attention and the liner notes are fantastic and everything is designed beautifully and then you look at some of the stuff that the estate has been putting out and you just think you know how come this little label that almost nobody's ever heard of is able to do such a fantastic job with these um posthumous releases Hmm. and the estate and sony managed to make everything look so kind of tacky you know yeah i mean the the best the the best sony can come up with is a, a bit of chalk (laughs) well it's not like they haven't put out great products before like i mean let's think about the ultimate collection now that came out when michael jackson was alive though but it's clear that sony Uh can put out beautiful products um yeah when they want to (laughs) but yeah no not not posthumously nothing that's come out posthumously has been good i don't think i mean you had um the dvd collection uh, Vision, Vision, whatever it's called, yeah, um, with its lenticular cover, where, fantastic packaging. Mm. Yeah, but but the 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 uh, the way it was put onto the disc was appalling. I mean, all the videos were in the wrong aspect ratios. All the videos were in stereo two point zero. Now those those videos all came out on DVD in two thousand and one, and they were in five point one surround sound. And then you're coming forward like nine years to what is supposed to be the ultimate collection and they've reduced everything back to stereo 2.0 you're just going what are you doing yeah and it just seems like with everything that the um everything that's come out posthumously seems to have been a bodge job in some way you know you had the bad dvd which was like worse quality than a lot of the bootlegs that have been circulating for years it just all seems a bit sort of slipshod and then you get hold of these beautiful um hippo select sets like uh rare pearls and they're just incredible by comparison they really put sony to shame yeah um as we before we move on to the next topic andy can you just let everyone know where to to get your uh off the wall ebook and about your site yeah sure uh so they just go to mj101series.com um and they'll be able to download everything from the 101 greatest hits through to the latest release of off the wall Awesome. Just can I? I just want to say. I just want to add one thing about this set, and I just just for the purpose of like, um, not totally bagging it out. Because yes, yes, as a as a big Michael Jackson fan, I would like to have a CD with more songs on it than just what has come out before. But I do want to say that I like the idea of a new fan who goes and buys this album to just get this album as it was released. Because I, I think when you have an album with all demos on it and remixes and all kind of crazy stuff going on, like acapellas and interviews, like in the 2001 version, I think that kind of, it works in some ways as a completist. But if you're putting on the album off the wall at a party and you just want to rock out to the album and then suddenly you've got Quincy Jones and Rod Temperton talking for five minutes during a party, it's just weird for me. So they can put uh, yeah. that on another disc, though. They could put that on another disc. I, I, but yeah. So I kind of the only thing that I like about this album is the fact that it's got the album by itself on one disc. I really like that. I think new fans are going to enjoy the album more in some ways in that format. And it could also be, I mean, as you know, Charles alluded to, and you guys know that there was plans to release, you know, a special edition back in two thousand and nine. Whether or not it was Michael's intent back then just to have the album come out as it was 
just, you know, without any extra bells and whistles. It could be that's what his intent was. And it's an interesting thing in the fan community that we have sections who say, you know, nothing should ever be released beyond what was, you know, canon in a sense, what was released and what was approved by Michael. And then you have other fans who are like, I want everything that ever, you know, he ever recorded. And there has to be that balance between yes. how you present the legacy of, of Off the Wall and say, look, here is the album and really draw focus on that album without, you know, pulling focus off to, yeah, and here's a demo or here, God forbid, is a, you know, dreadful remix by someone. Pitbull. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say the name. But, um, yeah, you know, just, just to... I agree with you. There is something special about putting the CD on and, and hearing the album as it was intended in its entirety without hearing, you know, a track after Burn This Disco Out and it's a, you know, it's a remix of Don't Stop To Get Enough or, or anything like that. I'm all fine for putting it on a second disc, but there is something about the actual listening experience, just hearing the album as it, as it was created. Yeah, I think that's kind of saving grace in a little way. When the word is on your shoulder Gotta straighten up your act and book it down If you can't hang with the feeling Then there ain't no room for you in this part of town Cause we're the party people night and day Living crazy, that's the only way So
that fool who's deep inside your soul Wanna see an exhibition <laughs> Better do it now before you get too old Cause we're the party people night and day Living crazy, that's the only way So tonight, gotta leave the love out of the ship This is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So in other news, we've got a performance coming up soon at the Grammys. I think the Grammys are happening pretty shortly. I think they're actually in two days. They'll probably happen before this episode comes out. And uh, at the uh, at the 58th Annual Grammy Awards, there will be a performance by Miguel. Uh, it's going to be She's Out of My Life to coincide with the Off the Wall reissue. I'm not, I don't really, I've got to be honest, I don't really know much about this singer. Like I, I've heard the name, I've seen him featured on other artists' music. And I, I from what I understand, he's a great vocalist. Uh, but yeah, we've got, a, we've got another Michael Jackson Grammys um, nod coming up very shortly to enjoy. Q, are you looking forward to it? I'm looking forward to it because it's such a good song. Um, I don't know the artist off the top of my head. Uh, he has been on the Grammys before performing, but yeah, it's a beautiful song. So I am looking forward to seeing the performance and any tribute I think is always really cool. Totally. Charles? Uh, I, I really am not particularly interested. Um, I mean, I just, I don't think I've ever seen anybody cover a Michael Jackson song 
and really do a particularly good job of it. I know Stu's Out of My Life is not a Michael Jackson song. He didn't write it, but it. I just find that it's very rare that anybody is able to uh, cover anything that he's done and, and do a particularly good job of it. I'm, I don't know a whole heap about Miguel, but this, all this stuff. I mean, these these awards performances tend to just end in disaster. You had that hideous Earth song thing with yeah. Smokey Robinson and a few other people. Then you had Chris Brown when he did that awful tribute, and I, you know, I just don't, I I don't foresee good things uh, based on precedent. Um, I probably won't watch it, to be honest, just to spare myself the horror. <laughs> it's It's got some cool things about it. They're like, they've got Greg Fillengains there on keys, so that'll be a nice little nod to the original people that collaborated with Michael on uh, some of those earlier Sony records. Um, so I think, I think I'll probably give it a go. But Andy, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm a fan of Miguel, so I think he'll do a good job. Whether or not it's actually warranted, I'm not 100% sure. I think it it feels more like a, a push to, A, get, um, you know, Miguel another couple of minutes in the spotlight um, and also to potentially push off the wall, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I just, uh, of all the songs off that album, I think if they were going to do something, they're, they're potentially uh, stronger songs off there to, to kind of reflect more who Michael was. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but I'm not expecting uh, great things from it. I hope it's subtle and classy. Like, like Charles, what you were talking about before, seeing seeing Chris Brown do The Way You Make Me Feel <laughs> and Man in the Mirror, it just wasn't classy. There was just something about it that was not... I didn't like it at all. I, I don't know why. I just didn't enjoy it. Uh, I, I hope that Miguel is not dressed in Michael Jackson clothes or something oh like that. Oh, God. But, Sequence from head to toe. Yeah. Only Michael can pull that off, people. Yeah, just, just something classy where he's being himself but giving a beautiful vocal rendition of She's Out of My Life. Maybe a video montage of Michael in the back. I don't know, but just something classy. I think it'd be nice. But he certainly, he, I've got to say, like, Michael really has been getting a lot of, like, it seems like year after year at every award show, there's some kind of reference to Michael Jackson. And, and I expected that in 2009 and 2010, but to be continuing even today, like, we had the Hollow Sham performance at, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when was that, like, last year or the year before? I can't even remember. I've blocked it out. But, um, year before, I think. Yeah, it's, it's like something every year at an award show. It's like really interesting. Is this going to be happening in 10 years' time? Or <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it was said, um, you know, award shows were so desperate for Michael to appear, um, allegedly, that they would just make up awards that they'd never given to anyone before just, just so they could give them to him and he would show up. Um, because there was a kind of a, an excitement around that whenever Michael Jackson would show up at an award show because he was considered such a kind of a recluse and an elusive figure. Um, and since he's gone, you see it in a lot of fans. Now Now that Michael's gone, they're desperately trying to recapture that magic in a way, to, to, to put a pin in that excitement and hold it in place and cling on to it. And that's why they kind of work themselves up into a frenzy about these posthumous releases and start these ridiculous 
let's all buy 17 copies and get it to number one <laughs> campaigns and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's this constant trying to trying to whip the magic back up, you know, make trying to make something happen that's just never going to happen again. And um, that's probably what's going on with these award shows, I think, you know, because the, the fact is the music scene today, well, I say fact, my opinion is that is that the music scene today is pretty barren. And um, and that really the only way to to cling on to any kind of credibility um, as an award show is to keep trying to get these legendary artists to come and kind of um, legitimize you, I think. You know, you need you need a Mick Jagger or you need an Elton John or you need somebody, somebody with some uh, status and some legitimacy um, to come and kind of uh, validate you as an award ceremony, I think. And it's, I think that's probably where this is all coming from, apart from, of course, as Andy said, this is just a shameless advert for Off the Wall as well. This is just, it's basically an advert. It's not a tribute, it's an advert. Um but yeah, I think there's an element of that as well. You know, who really cares about if Chris Brown is going to be performing an award ceremony or if, you know, I mean, who even is out there anyway? You know, rubbish, Justin Bieber, who cares? So I think that they're, they're desperately trying to recapture the magic of a, of a period when the artists were worth tuning in to watch on an award show. I don't even remember the last award show I've watched, actually. Like, because, yeah, back in the day, I would, you know, even if there was a tiny possibility of even a flash over to Michael for something or an acknowledgement, I would have tuned in and watched the whole damn thing. But now it's very, yeah, I can't even remember the last one. And I think that's the, you know, that's what they're, you know, as Charles said, it's kind of what they're playing at. They want to draw you know, as many eyes to, to the TV set for the ratings. And so, you know, we've seen it in clickbait, you know, put Michael Jackson in a headline and people will read the article. So I think it's a similar situation with these award shows. It's like, you know, say that there's going to be a tribute to Michael and you'll get a slew of people kind of tuning in. Um, it's, you know, an easy get and you just hope that it's done from the performer's point of view. I mean, Miguel, you know, an amazing vocalist, but they'll always come up against Michael Jackson. And uh, when someone else is doing a Michael Jackson song, no one comes close. So I think it's a, you know, it's a losing proposition from the get-go. I can understand it from an artist saying I want to pay tribute, but I think the difficulty is you will always have that comparison straight away going, oh, you know, he's, he'll be singing it and you'll be hearing Michael in your head and you'll be going, no, he's not hitting that note or he's changing that phrase or whatever. So it's, it'll be an interesting one to watch. Thank you for letting us know about it, Jamin. No problem. So moving on to a little bit of Jackson's news, they are currently on tour in Switzerland with a very different performance. They are performing as part of the Art on Ice touring show. So it's like a large ice skating show with um, singers. Jesse J is also uh, a performer in this. And they're performing some of their, of course, signature tunes and massive hits. Has anyone had a chance to watch any of the videos, Jamin? Yes, I have. It's uh, really something to behold. Uh, I saw a video put out there by uh, Jackson Source the other day on Facebook, and wow, it's it's really full on. Like, I mean, you got 
these big stages that the Jacksons are performing on and the stages are moving around on the ice. So, like, they're not even stationary. They're singing and dancing on a stage that's slipping and sliding around this giant ice rink and then there's all performers on ice skates and whatever you call them, like, zipping around them, doing crazy dance moves, like moonwalking on the ice, all kinds of crazy things. Uh, great lighting, the, the dancers are wearing like LED costumes and things like that. But of course, what it's all about is the music and the Jacksons are performing those songs uh, with as much vibrancy and uh, excitement as they have in the last you know, five years. So it's really, really interesting to watch. Uh, it's, it's, if you want to see the Jacksons in a really unique way, <laughs> this is pretty unique. <laughs> Gentlemen, have you had a chance to look at any of this, Charles? Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the clips on YouTube. I mean, I think the Jacksons are a fantastic live act anyway. This does seem like a, a kind of a unique way to see them. And it's nice to see them branching out and doing these different kind of shows. I saw them last year at the um, Proms in the Park in London. They played for, I forget what it was now, so like 40,000 people um, in Hyde Park in London with a 100-piece orchestra or something like that, huge orchestra. And um, and now they're doing this uh, Art on Ice show where they're performing with the ice skaters. It's, it's nice to see them kind of um, just exploring exploring themselves a little bit, I think, and expanding their horizons and doing these unique shows. I think um, it's really interesting to see them uh, going out on the road and doing this stuff. And I think it's a shame that they didn't do it earlier. I, I wish they'd been doing this since way before Michael passed away. Yeah, absolutely, indeed, indeed. I think the reception they get um, when they do perform, like at, at proms or here at Art on Ice, is still very warm. It's not just yeah. like the the golden oldies that go along to see that, like the young people yes. go. You know, the highlight of proms is the Jacksons, you know, or something, or their monster, the monster big performance they did was it late last year, Jamin. Yeah, I think it was late. Oh no, it was early this year. Is it CES early this year? In Vegas. The big trade, big trade show in Vegas. They, they, everyone said the highlight performance was the Jacksons by far. So I'm, I'm, you know, the reception they're getting is is well worth it and, and deserved. What are your thoughts, Andy? Have you had a chance to watch any of the clips? Yeah, I have. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's a, a the production quality is kind of second to none as um you know it's been mentioned they kind of float around on the ice and <laughs> what feels the logistics like logistics are amazing one big ice hockey puck um <laughs> but yeah it's just you know and, and obviously incorporating it with with the talented ice skaters and it feels like a weird combination but somehow it works and the way that they start the show with all the LED lighting, you know, it's very reminiscent of the Immortal and One kind of routines where they use the LED lighting for Billie Jean. And it's just, an, you know, a, a fresh and exciting way of kind of seeing the Jacksons perform. And um, I don't know whether it's something that was exclusive to this, you know, event just in Switzerland or whether it's uh, something that they plan to take on the ice. Uh, on the road, or uh, yeah, I just it was, but it's an interesting, you know, an interesting presentation. Yeah, it's something I think like it's it'd be way more enjoyable to see in the flesh, actually live, than watching on YouTube as well. Especially, especially if you're already a fan of these ice skating shows or ice skating in general, which I'm not. But if I was a big ice skating fan and I went to an ice skating show. And the Jacksons were there being represented in that medium. I would, it would just be amazing to see that. Like, yeah, I, I was. 
quite blown away actually by it. Um, what what I found interesting as well was that the the more the Jacksons perform over time, you know, since Michael's passed, the more they seem to be incorporating his solo songs, especially from his later career. And I noticed in this particular show in Switzerland, they were even doing black or white, and uh, Tito's there doing the black or white guitar riff and. Yeah, I saw them when they played uh, here in the States and yeah, you kind of, it's weird. It's it's kind of an enjoyable experience, but at the same time, you kind of wonder, okay, why are they doing it? Are they doing it because they know it'll get the crowd going? Um, you know, I've got obviously no issues with them playing any Jackson 5 stuff, playing Jackson stuff, but when you hear them doing, um, you know, like Black or White, for example, you kind of go, well, is it necessary? Couldn't you just do shake your body down? Or couldn't yes. you do, you know, never can say goodbye? Or could you, you know, they've got such a rich heritage of their own material that you don't necessarily need to be um, borrowing from Michael's catalogue in a way. I mean, I don't mind, you know, it's the same way that Prince will do, you know, don't stop till you get enough in his shows. People playing respect and paying homage to Michael through a live performance they can do something like that, which they do fittingly with Gone Too Soon. But, yeah, it's just that balance. To me, it's the same if, you know, Michael started playing Dynamite, you know, in, in, <laughs> oh or, or, or something, you know. Oh, my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so I always, you know, it, it's always interesting because in the moment you're kind of going, hmm, I don't know whether they should be doing this, but then the next moment you kind of, you know, getting to hear a song which perhaps Michael never performed, played live and so you get to experience that music that way so yeah i'm kind of 50 50 on it mm. now i've got sweetest sweetest in my head thank you andy <laughs> i actually really love those songs <laughs> i love that those singles from really the 80s album. it's a really good album it is oh, and those awesome duets he did back in the 80s oh my god so good q do you know if they did yeah. any of their um solo stuff like summertime feeling or Tito's new song. I can't remember what it's called now. I don't know. I haven't heard any mentions of it and I haven't seen any mentions of it. And that's a little bit surprising. I don't know how long the actual set was though. Yes. So maybe, but I haven't seen anything. Yeah. So our next news item, this one's a little bit controversial. It's definitely sparked up a lot of discussion in the Michael Jackson fan world. Not just the fan world. Actually, yeah, even beyond that. It's in like it's really spread like wildfire in the regular media. And, of course, we're talking about Michael Jackson being portrayed in an upcoming film about 9-11 by Joseph... I think you pronounce it Fines. Is it Joseph Fines? Um, yep. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we know that it's actually happening. I think we, Q and I, we, we broke the... Well, we didn't break the news, but we spoke about it last year on our first season about uh, this movie potentially coming out and it looks like it is coming out for sure because Joseph Fiennes was recently in an interview with Entertainment Tonight talking about his role as Michael Jackson in this film and he's saying things and of course all the controversy is all around him being you know a white English actor playing an American black male in this movie and he's addressed that straight away like it's not like he's ignoring that fact like he's in he's on entertainment tonight actually saying and i quote i'm a white middle class guy from london i'm as shocked as you might be 
He acknowledges that Michael had vitiligo and states that he, you know, in terms of physical appearance, was probably close to what Michael looked like at the end of his life. And, uh, yeah, basically says that he's shocked that he got the role in the first place. Why is he shocked? It's not like it's a lottery and you win a ticket. It's it's an acting job that you go for. I don't know. Why why is he shocked? Didn't say why he was shocked. He just said he was shocked. So movies apparently coming out. And uh, listeners, if you want to know what it's about, apparently it's about a supposed road trip that took place after 9-11 occurred. Michael was, of course, performing in New York City the night before, I think, 9-11 actually happened. And, uh, you know, he did two shows, his 30th anniversary celebration concerts at the Madison Square Garden, two shows just before the attacks. And then uh, the next morning, apparently, he jumped on a bus with uh, Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor, who were both included on stage in those specials. And apparently they jumped on that bus and went on a road trip to the other side of America or something. Well, I'm not really sure, but apparently that's that didn't even happen. Like, I'm hearing that that didn't even happen. It was originally in a Vanity Fair article that it happened, and I'm hearing it never did. I think TJ Jackson from 3T, Michael's nephew, was on Twitter saying that that didn't actually happen. Also, um, the estate of Marlon Brando uh, put a tweet out or a statement saying that this, yes, it is a good story, but it is not true at all. Yeah, and like Joseph's on social media and places saying that it's meant to be the film is is not a dig at these people what it's meant to be is a fictional story that's meant to be comedic and endearing and mainly is trying to highlight how detached celebrities of their level can become from society and if you look at it from that point of view i'm imagining something that can be quite that could be lighthearted and funny uh, and just seeing these three characters interact, I don't know. Like, I think it'd work well as something to read. Like, some kind. I would like to read the screenplay, but I have no idea. I, I just basically think there's no way this thing can visually work on screen. I don't know. I've I've always thought there's just no way Michael Jackson could be properly portrayed in a film. I mean, we saw what happened with Flex Alexander in the Man in the Mirror <laughs> movie, and or whatever that was, that TV series. That was just ridiculous so i don't understand how anyone could portray michael jackson especially in the later period of his life when he did look like such a unique individual like i don't know how anyone could portray him but that's just my kind of thoughts on it andy what do you think about this yeah i you know i i think i was like everybody you you first read it and you go okay um you try to dig into it i mean first of all as you said it was based on a vanity fair article which has since been proven to be completely fictitious whether you look at the the cultural identity of a person and say, okay, well, should you know, should Joseph Fiennes be playing, uh, you know, a, a black American, African American um, person? Was there no one else, you know, qualified to to play that role? My my favorite um, kind of uproar that that came about was somebody tweeted, um, they'll accept him playing the role as long as Angela Bassett plays Liz Taylor. Um, <laughs> I did see that. <laughs> Love yeah, it. <laughs> which, which I think kind of, you know, shows the hypocrisy of things. Um, you know, especially in, in, uh, in America at the moment when you have the Oscars so white um, kind of uproar with the, with the lack of African-American and black actors represented. You know, there there does kind of seem a bit of uh, whitewashing, pun the pun, of um, of Michael's history, and yeah, I just I think that the damage in it 
is that potentially people will believe that this took place and people will believe that you know, the three of them drove their way surviving on Burger King stops and uh, <laughs> finally got back to Los Angeles. But, uh, yeah, look, I think it's going to, I think it's, uh, you know, a made-for-TV film and it's part of a series that are being made. It's not something I'm going to be rushing out to watch. And as you say, I think it's going to be very difficult whether there's ever going to be a biopic of Michael. A, how to focus on which period of, of his life do you focus on? B, who plays him? Who plays him convincingly? All those elements. So, yeah, I, I'm not something that I'm going to be tuning into. I would have a serious issue if they continued to market this as a true story. This is not a true story. It's been denied by so many people who have first-hand knowledge. There is no argument to be made that this story could be true. It's, it's categorically not true. So that's issue number one. If they're going to release this and claim that it's a true story, then then that's bullshit and um and it sucks and i mean this really this all hinges on joseph fine's performance i think you know because i i really struggle to see how anybody could portray michael jackson in those years of his life and not make it offensive i mean you know from the way that they're going to have to make him look to he's going to have to try and do that high voice and i don't know if he's going to be medicated playing michael medicated as he was throughout that period. those gigs in new york you know i mean the the whole thing has the potential to just be such a cartoonish offensive kind of uh, demeaning end result and i i really think it would take serious serious skill and empathy and restraint and subtlety to to pull this off in any way that would not be grossly offensive. I mean, you saw, as somebody mentioned, Flex Alexander a few minutes ago. I mean, you saw what they did to Flex Alexander to try to represent Michael Jackson in the latter days of his life, or the latter years of his life, I should say, and and the result was uh, was not good. Um, I mean, you, you just have to look at Michael Jackson impersonators, right? These are people who spend their entire lives trying to figure out a way to look like Michael Jackson and do that because they love him and they think he's brilliant. And they still end up coming out the other end looking, I mean, like melted waxworks. I don't know what what they're doing to themselves makeup-wise, but... So even people that are going out of their way to try to make themselves look good end up looking awful. So how they're going to, because this, I mean, it's been described as comedic. I, I'm not liking that. I'm not liking the comedic thing and the portraying them as detached from society. I can just see this being hideous. I can see this being totally, totally offensive. I think we're probably going to see Rafe Fiennes with completely ghost white makeup on with a hideous kind of massive prosthetic nose. I, I just, I, I really, I dread, I completely dread to, you know, to think of what, what the end result is going to be from this. I, I think this is the kind of thing the estate should be trying to stop, mm. to be honest. I don't know why they're not intervening. And the Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando estates have responded to this story and have stated absolutely resolutely that, this story is bogus and the Michael Jackson estate has not done that. And I don't know why, I don't know why they're allowing these things to go on unchallenged. 
They've got chalk to sell. <laughs> <laughs> they very, sure very busy. Very busy. Q, what are your thoughts? Are you going to be tuning in to watch this? It's going to be like a car crash, I think. Like how you're not going to be able to see it somewhere. A clip of it or... Oh. I think the story itself sounds hilarious. Like, can you imagine Michael Jackson, Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando, you know, renting a car and then stopping at every, like, you know, Burger King and everything along the way? Like, can you imagine? That's hilarious. <laughs> that story actually is really funny and hilarious, but that's not a true story. Like, as a fictional story, that would be really funny, but, like, people are just going to completely believe this actually happened. They really are. They don't, mm-hmm. like, you could scream until you're red in the face and no one will listen. They'll just think this is actually how it happened after such a, you know, a massive tragedy and, and horrific events in New York City. Yeah. Um, I, I think it could, I, what you're saying, like, I think it could work, like, the in a weird way. The story itself like, could work in a weird way. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and I have to say, like, um, oh, my God, I want to see Stockard Chatting play Elizabeth Taylor. She, she would be <laughs> incredible. I'm really looking forward just to seeing that at least. But, yeah, I don't think that that's the avenue that they're going for. And I say that because possibly of the casting of um, Ray Fiennes. I think that it's not well cast at Joseph Fiennes. My apologies, Joseph Fiennes. Um, <laughs> yes, Lord Voldemort is not playing Michael Jackson. No, in this movie. no. The lesser, the lesser of the Fiennes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think because of the casting, they're going towards a more satirical and bad taste comedy. I can't see how... The casting of this leads towards a sort of light-hearted, respectful story at all. I think they've gone for controversy and headlines and satirical, like, offensive comedy. I, I think it could be funny in terms of, like, here's three people that have no idea probably anymore how to function in a normal society without a massive entourage around them, and all of a sudden they're on their own, Two of them are quite elderly and probably need lots of, <laughs> I don't know, things to get care. them through the day, like care, medication, whatever. I'm not really sure. And then all of a sudden they're in these normal scenarios where Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando and Michael Jackson have to walk into, like you said, a Burger King or a chemist or like a drugstore. Or whatever. Like, yeah, and just tr- try to have normal conversations with people. Like, like I th- that is hilarious. Yeah, it, it would be like the scene from Michael Jackson's private home movies where he's in the in the shopping center with the with the kitchen glove on, trying to you know <laughs> shop. Like, yeah. I think it could actually work in that sense. But it, yeah, it's I- like a it's like a social experiment. How would these three megastars go in a normal scenario? The the fish out of water aspect is always interesting. You know, seeing people outside their elements and so when you have those you know that in itself you go okay that makes an interesting story and obviously it did for Vanity Fair because they created the story Mm. but I think where a lot of people are are equally upset is the backdrop of 9-11 does it somewhat trivialize Mm -hmm. the impact of 9-11 where you know and and the reality of what Michael was actually doing which was supporting fans trying to make sure that the fans who had traveled from Europe or wherever were able to get out of New York and, and make their own way home as well. So I think, you know, there are, again, you kind of look at 
the backdrop and the, the context of everything. And it just feels like it's, you know, a, just not a, a terribly intelligent kind of way to, to go about presenting the story. No. And there's another, there's another film that came out recently, actually, not anything to do with Michael Jackson, but the, you guys might have heard of the new film um, Steve Jobs that uh, was mm. penned by Aaron Sorkin, won a Golden Globe, box office bomb. But it actually has been... It's a quite a good film, actually. I thought I, I watched it and really liked it, but it's been really criticised by fans of Steve Jobs and fan and and also Jobs' um, late wife. Uh, I think her name's Lorraine Powell Jobs, but she's she's actually come out and said, and she she um, wrote and called the the people that were originally involved in the film before Danny Boyle was brought in to produce and before different actors came on board and said, look, I don't think you should be involved in this film because my husband is not well represented in it. It's not It's not based on reality. It's not what happened. There's scenes that are in it that are made up and I don't want you to be involved. And lots of people backed off when, when his wife actually tried to do that. So it's a similar thing to me. It's like a movie that's fabricating things that never happened to the point where it's, I would say it probably crosses over to disrespect. You know, with, with the Steve Jobs parallel, you can actually say, well, Steve Jobs did make those key speeches. Yeah. Um, this is completely fictitious. You know, it's, it's got nothing to do with the actual reality of what occurred. And so, as you say, the, should this get any traction, the, that will become the story that, that comes on and that people will say, oh, yeah, but Michael and Elizabeth and um, Marlon, you know, all hopped in a bus and off they went. And it's like it didn't happen. So, you know, they'll, they'll do the typical based on a true story and get around it that way. But, yeah, I just think, again, it'll become, the fiction will become the fact. And unfortunately, in Michael's career, we saw that too many times. That's right. I think the timing yeah. of it is very bad as well with the Oscars so white movement in the US and and just the general unease that Hollywood is whitewashing history. And I know this is not a Hollywood production. It's actually a, a English production, but... It doesn't sit well when even the upcoming film Gods of Egypt, uh, directed by Alex Proyas, uh, like that it's set in Egypt and just the, the top build cast are Jared Butler, Abby Lee, Brenton Thwaites, like a, a teenager, white teenager from Australia, Rufus Sowell, Jeffrey Rush. Like these are, mm. and these are all white actors playing Egyptians. And this isn't the first time. Like, there's been so many films lately where they will be set in in places where people of color live, and the cast is all white. And I think this well, is actually, sort of just adding to it. It's a, that's a very interesting point because that, and not only because you've got another layer to this, which is that this is something that Michael Jackson was specifically pissed off about. Uh, this issue of white people being cast in black roles and uh, it has been said by multiple people that in the 90s uh, late 80s early 90s he was trying to get a film made about the history uh, of Africa about like the uh, about ancient Egypt where the cast would be all black and nobody would make it nobody would invest any money in it and that is why he went on to make the Remember the Time music video, because he had been turned down repeatedly with this movie project that he was trying to get uh, into into progress about um, ancient Egypt. And nobody would cast black people in the roles, even though clearly it's, it's a black uh, nation. 
So when you ha- when you add that into the mix, the fact that Michael Jackson specifically was trying to counter this trend of white people being cast in black roles, for him to then die and then for the industry to cast a white person to play him seems like an additional disrespect. I know, Jamin, I know you feel quite strongly in some ways about actors playing any role. Well, look, I'll put it this way. And, okay, can, I just have to preface this by saying that I would prefer Michael Jackson to be played by a black actor any time he was portrayed, any and every time. And I know Michael alluded to that kind of thing as well in his Oprah Winfrey interview where he said it was a ridiculous rumour that he wanted a white boy to play him in... Um, I don't know if there was it a film it was a TV. Yeah. It was a Pepsi, Pepsi commercial yeah. thing, wasn't it? Pepsi commercial. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would always love Michael to be portrayed by a black actor because he was a proud black American. Uh, we're dealing with a historical person here. We're not dealing with a fictional person. So, but on the, at the other, at the same time, like acting is a, it is a, an art form where you're becoming something other than what you are when you are an actor. And I really love versatile actors that can play wildly different things to what they are. So, for example, Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan in the film I'm Not There is incredible to watch because you've got a female playing a male and I just think she does an outstanding job of it. And I don't like the idea of there being boundaries between around what actors can do. Michael Jackson played a white man in the film Ghosts. And... Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I haven't decided myself what I think about this yet because on the one hand, I think Michael as a historical figure should always be portrayed as by a black man because he was a proud black man. But on the other hand, I have this deep respect for the art form of acting and people being able to do very versatile, wildly different things to what they are in real life. So I, do, I, I think it's inherently... I don't like, I don't, it doesn't fit com- sit comfortably with me when people say a white man can't play a black man. I don't like that from the point of view of what, what acting is. But at the same time, there needs to be greater equality or just equality in general in um, the film industry. And I think there's certainly not enough black lead roles at all. So I think, yeah, again, there's been a missed opportunity to have a black lead role where it would have been really fitting and appropriate. Does that make sense? Do I? I don't know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a complex scenario. That's why there's massive public debate about it. <laughs> I think the context, like the Kate Blanchett role in that film, that was a art house film that I think was experimental right from the concept of it. Yeah. This is a comedy. Yeah, it's not the same league. And that's also gender, not ethnicity, which is different as well. So. But also, I think in that respect, they were, you know, looking at. I think they have six characters playing Bob Dylan all throughout the the film. So mm. it's like meant to be this evolving persona that they're looking at. Um, yeah, look, if Denzel Washington was starring in the biopic of Elvis, would there be an uproar? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Very much so. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. Like I, I just, I just think I would be open to that. Like. <laughs> But in the right context, yeah. if it was like like that Bob Dylan one where it was six sure. people playing him in different aspects of him, then yeah, yeah. that would fit. Because then that's the concept of the film as opposed yeah. to just going, we, we're, we're casting someone. Who are we going to cast? We'll cast a, a British white guy. Yeah. 
who was it that just played Moses recently? Was that um, was that Russell Crowe or someone? Yeah, yeah. I didn't see that film. No, no, Noah, wasn't it Noah? Oh yeah, Noah. He played Noah. What was the? There was a film recently with Moses in it, and it was played by I'm pretty sure like just this white American actor. Was it called Exodus? Yes, that's the one. And who played? Who played Noah? Uh, Christian Christian Bale. Bale. Hello. (laughs) There you go. Like Christian. Yeah, there we are. Exodus, Gods and Kings. Christian Bale, Joel Edgerton, Ben Kingsley, Sigourney Weaver, John Turturro. Like, again, all of these actors are white actors. Every single one that I can see. Except for the bad guy, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That that is a trend, actually. So you have these kind of um, ancient uh, movies where they're all from the same place. They're all from the same country, uh, say Egypt. Uh, but then all of the good, all of the goodies, as it were, are played by white actors. And then all of the bad guys and the henchmen are played by black actors, <laughs> which is, you know, that 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 really is quite. Uh, disturbing in a way i mean it's 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 funny in that it's ludicrous but really on a deeper level it is disturbing that 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 is still going on Mm. shall we move on to something let's head to the super bowl did you guys i don't know if you watched the whole game lord knows i would not because i have no idea (laughs) i don't even i don't even know how australian football works any of those codes (laughs) <laughs> you're watching for the commercials i think you're not the only one uh yeah. and what about the halftime show who saw the halftime show which was uh coldplay beyonce and bruno mars and i think we probably all would note straight up with beyonce a nice little nod to her favorite entertainer ever she was wearing an outfit heavily 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 based on Michael's own Super Bowl outfit from his uh, halftime performance from 1993. What did you think, fellas? I thought it was a really nice nod. I mean, the whole aspect of the halftime performance was to kind of celebrate the 50 years of Super Bowl. And so paying homage to all, not all, but a lot of entertainers who had performed at halftime made sense. Was it the best halftime show I've seen? No, not by a long shot. But it was nice to uh, to see Beyonce kind of represent and um, come out in Michael's 1993 Super Bowl garb and um, do a good job of it. Charles? Um, I did not see the Super Bowl halftime performance, I'm afraid. I've heard the Beyonce song, which to me sounds like uh, a modem which is dying. And... Um, <laughs> I don't like it. And um, the, uh, I mean, the greatest half bowl, uh, Super Bowl halftime show ever, uh, undoubtedly, was Prince, I'm afraid. Oh, how did um, I know you'd say that, Charles? Yeah. <laughs> un- That's not what the polls say. <laughs> yeah, but those polls are rigged, you see, because, uh, because it, there is a, a massive difference between Michael Jackson fans and Prince fans. 
And Michael's fans are obsessed by these poles. It's crazy. I don't understand. They actually set up codes. Like, they, they create these robots on the internet which just vote in these polls over and over again. <laughs> Why would you do that? I mean, who, who has got the time for that? But, um, you know, so, so Michael wins all of those polls. Every poll he wins. And that's how you know when he doesn't win that it's rigged. Like, there was that poll, I think it was on Rolling Stone or somewhere a few years ago, for the greatest pop star ever. And he was winning right up until about a minute before the poll ended. And then all of a sudden, the number two had like half a million extra votes and they won. Uh, it was clearly a fraud. I don't know if that was Rolling Stone. I can't remember. It was a big magazine anyway. But, you know, unquestionably, the greatest halftime show, the Super Bowl ever, is Prince. I think Michael's, I, I, I get what Michael was trying to do with his, with the, the images in the crowd and and all that stuff but um uh, for me that is a hideous performance michael's uh super bowl performance lip sync start to finish and badly i didn't see this year's one i shan't seek it out not that we need to defend michael's super bowl performance but i think it is interesting to kind of note that that was the change so when Michael appeared on the Super Bowl, I think that was the first time in history they ever had ratings go up during the halftime over the actual game itself. And it kind of did set the, the benchmark for everybody who followed afterwards. There was more that they could do. And, yeah, Prince's one was phenomenal, no doubting that. But it was kind of like that was the, you know, the turning point for it and kind of like raised the bar and then everybody, you know, worked to, to top that, whether that was Madonna, Katy Perry, Janet, um, Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, whoever, everybody kind of like would look to that performance and go, okay, well, how do I bring my own thing to it? How do I make it a Super Bowl performance? And prior to, to 1993, there really weren't Super Bowl performances. Yeah, Andy, I think you make an excellent point. I actually agree with both you and Charles. I, I agree with Charles in, in the sense that I think the Super Bowl performance Michael Jackson gave vocally was one of the worst performances he ever gave because none of it was live except the bit where he's speaking five octaves lower than his singing voice in between two songs. <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh like, I agree with Charles on that side, but you can't ignore the fact that that was a revolutionary moment in Super Bowl history, in live performance history, well, quote-unquote live performance history, and... You know, just TV history. It was a massive, massive moment. The scale it was done was bigger than ever before. I really like watching Michael Jackson's performance because I think the choreography and the dancing's great. I think his costume's great. Everything like that. I just, I do love the show as much as it grates me that he's not singing live when he was a great live vocalist. Beyonce's tribute was really special. I think it was, I like tributes that are subtle. I like tributes that are not impersonations. And she wasn't there moonwalking <laughs> with with his, you know, jam jacket on. She was just wearing the jacket and there was slight nods to Michael. Um, I think even a couple of moves in the choreography were similar to things Michael had done before. But yeah, it was subtle. It was respectful. It was cool. She's a huge fan of his. She says it in every single show she ever does. She does like little Michael Jackson tributes. So I thought it was amazing to watch and it gave me goosebumps when I saw her wearing that awesome, awesome jacket. It was like a. I liked the like the halftime show. It was a, a decent one, and Coldplay uh, were were pretty cool. And then Bruno Mars, of course, another huge Michael fan. Um, I believe he used to impersonate Michael as like as a young kid growing up. Yeah. Um, 
so I think that that's pretty cool that sort of he was there as well and then uh, the the big message the placards that the audience held up at the end believe in love I thought that like just reminded me very much of the the heal the world moment I don't think that was a direct tribute I think that's just may have been influenced by but that certainly gave me like reminiscing of the 93 show yeah um, but then in the video clips montage where Janet was left out of mm. the the perf- performer that was sort of highlighted in the video collection for the longest again was Michael Jackson yeah that was during wasn't there a co- there was a Coldplay song wasn't there playing over that video montage. yeah yeah I that was a part that gave me goosebumps for sure because it was like paying respect to the king it was great but like Oh, that bit where they left Janet out, man, that still grates me. Because they're never that, gonna they're also, never gonna acknowledge that again. I know they won't acknowledge it again, but it just pisses me off because what happened, like and I don't know if we should go into a discussion around that incident, but like it just annoys me because it clearly it wasn't her fault what happened. We know it wasn't her fault. You know, and it was just it's just another example of a Jackson being railroaded by the media. And I just, I just think, you know, the performance itself has never been given the respect it deserves because of what happened at the end, the accident that happened at the end. I think the the issue with it is we also are seeing it through the eyes of Jackson fans, and most of us are probably big Janet fans as well. Mm. Um, when you kind of remove yourself from that, because yeah, I was going, okay, when are they going to show Janet? And it's like, oh, that didn't happen. But then when you kind of watch it back and you say, okay, well, they didn't show the Black Eyed Peas, they didn't show Madonna, they didn't show, um, you know, a whole, they, I don't think they showed Tom Petty, they didn't show, maybe they did, uh, they showed the Rolling Stones. But there was a slew. They didn't I mean, show obviously. any of the old Disney ones either. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, before, they didn't show, yeah, before, they didn't show half of those. Um, so there, there was a lot of artists who weren't represented, whether or not they should have been represented, you know, up for debate, and I'm sure each artist will say, Tom Petty fans will say, yeah, Tom Petty should have been up there. Janet fans will say, yes, Janet should have been. Madonna fans, yes, Madonna should have been. So, you know, I don't think it was necessarily a slight against Janet. I don't think the, the NFL necessarily want to go back to that or remind anyone of that. But um, within context, I think, you know, it's it's all part and parcel of trying to, to cram a uh, 50 year celebration into 12 minutes yeah yeah that makes sense thanks for being the voice of reason there andy i'm a little bit angry (laughs) i I, uh just want to put on record that i totally do not believe that that was an accident what happened in janet's performance i don't believe that even one percent no and also that i'm totally in favor of airbrushing madonna out of anything (laughs) and also um did they show james brown Yes, they did. Okay. Yeah, they, they showed James Brown, Whitney, Michael. Uh, they were the key ones. Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, Prince, Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. I think Katie that Perry, was it. I think. Did Katie get a look in? Yeah, I'm not sure. They're the ones I can remember. Yeah. It was good fun. It was nice to be reminded of the 93 Michael Hart yeah. show, though. Yeah. Oh, did you guys notice? Because I'm such a video buff. Did you like? I I was watching it in a pretty low quality version, but did you notice if Michael's um footage looked any better than we'd seen it before? Was it better than the DVD release that came out on with you know the dangerous one that had um heal the world or whatever it was? I never noticed. It was a pretty bad YouTube video that I was watching. Yeah, yeah. I saw the live broadcast. It felt like it was broadcast quality, but 
nothing upgraded or anything like that. Okay. All right. So another big development in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this one's a big one, massive one. It's a uh, uh, the next chapter, I guess, in the Sorova verse Casio slash Port slash Estate and Sony uh, court case that's happening. Well, the court, I shouldn't say the court case is happening right now, but the um, the legal scenario that looks like it will evolve into into a court case. Uh, I think we might hand over to Charles for a little bit, who's um, here to give us a bit of background on that scenario and why it's important in the Michael Jackson world and what's recently happened. Okay, so background is 2010, uh, the Michael Jackson estate and Sony released a posthumous album, which is entitled Michael. And on that album are three songs called Breaking News, Monster and Keep Your Head Up. These are known as the Casio songs. They are three of 12 songs which were sold to Sony and the Michael Jackson estate by the Casio family, and in particular Eddie Casio, who were friends of Michael Jackson, uh, which they claimed were songs that Michael Jackson had recorded in their bathroom through a tube uh, in 2007, um, and they sold to the estate and Sony as unreleased Michael Jackson material. Upon their release, um, it was uh, widely considered by fans as well as Michael Jackson's family, friends, and collaborators in the main that uh, these songs were not performed by Michael Jackson. And a lady called Vera Sarova has brought a class action lawsuit against multiple defendants who include Sony Music, the Michael Jackson Estate, MJJ Productions, Eddie Casio, James Port, who was the producer on the uh, the songs that were given to the estate and Sony, and Angelixon Productions, which is the name of Eddie Casio's production company. Last year, uh, as some people who were listening back then will recall, the estate, uh, well, the defendants collectively claimed that the lawsuit which had been brought was an affront to their freedom of speech, their right to freedom of speech under the American Constitution. They claimed it was a SLAP case, SLAP, S-L-A-P-P, strategic lawsuit against public participation, i.e. this is a lawsuit which has been brought strategically to prevent people from exercising their right to uh, free speech. So obviously uh, they have... Well, so what what you do when when there's a slap when you when you allege that a case that has been brought against you is a slap case, um, what you have to do is file an anti-slap motion, which is a motion where you're saying this lawsuit is a breach of my right to freedom of speech, and therefore it should be tossed out of court. So the defendants have filed this anti-slap case, and some more documents have been published in the last few days, which are the defendant's arguments as to why this is a slap case, why this is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. So I'll take the documents in turn. So the first document is filed jointly by Sony and the Michael Jackson estate. It's signed by lawyer Zia Madaba on behalf of the uh, Sony Music defendant, and it's signed by Howard Weitzman, the Michael Jackson estate's lawyer, on their behalf. The document says that a hearing is due to be held in courtroom 308 at 600 South Commonwealth Avenue, LA, uh, at 2.45 p.m. on March 15th. That will be a telephone hearing, but it will be held in a courtroom, so you might be able to go along and watch if you live in LA and you are that way inclined. 
at the hearing, the defendants, the documents say, uh, i.e. MJ Estate, Sony and MJJ Productions, who this particular document is filed on behalf of, will move to kick the case out of court on grounds that the comments they made were protected by their right to freedom of speech. They term that speech, quote, expressive conduct in connection to the distribution of a music album. Um, they say that uh, Vera Sarova cannot demonstrate a probability that she will prevail on the merits of her claims. The, uh, they also say in the documents that if uh, indeed the case is kicked out of court, they will be pursuing Ms. Sarova for their expenses or their legal bills. The document says, quote, Plaintiff Vera Sarova is trying to chill musical expression through protection statutes aimed at false advertising. Her claims arise out of the exercise of free of uh, speech in connection with a public issue. The defendant's comments at issue are fully protected, non-commercial speech. They're claiming that everything they said about the uh, the vocals on those tracks being legitimate, they're claiming it's non-commercial speech. Um, the pla- they continue, plaintiff's class action lawsuit has the capacity to inhibit expression in books, music, television, films, comedy, and other performing arts, should it proceed. So they're claiming that this is some sort of civil rights issue. If the court rules that they are not allowed to describe these songs as uh, Michael Jackson's songs, then it's some sort of devastating blow for freedom of speech across the entirety of the United States of America. The lawsuit that Miss Sarova has brought, she contests, uh, see, she has to demonstrate specific instances in which the uh, defendants have described the songs as being performed by Michael Jackson. In that respect, she relies on four instances. The first and the most damning, in my opinion, is uh, a statement on the back cover of the album itself, which says that the CD includes nine previously unreleased vocal tracks performed by Michael Jackson. The second instance she relies on is a statement which was issued by Sony Music, uh, in which it said that it had investigated uh, the origins of the vocals and believed that they were Michael Jackson's. The third is a statement which was issued by Howard Weitzman on behalf of the estate, in which he said he was confident, the estate was confident in the results of its own investigation into the veracity of the vocals. And the fourth instance is, is a, uh, the fourth instance is a video which was published when the album was released, which described it as, quote, a new album from Michael Jackson. Now, Sony and the estate claim that none of these statements constitute commercial speech they say that an advert an advertisement in a video is not commercial speech they say that text on the back cover of a cd is not commercial speech i mean try wrapping your head around that one they claim that they were merely offering an opinion on a matter of public interest and they say that in in u.s law offering an opinion on a matter of public interest is protected speech and therefore if uh, this lawsuit is allowed to proceed then it will have chilling effects for freedom of speech in America. Uh, They claim, quote, demanding perfect certainty about the nature of a deceased performer's contribution to an expressive work would result in Jackson's posthumous music never being released or in its release being chilled. 
Um, they cite case law which states that naming the author or creator of an artwork is protected speech. And then they argue that trying to stop them from naming Michael Jackson as the creator of the Casio songs is therefore a breach of their constitutional rights. This is a very interesting issue because, of course, the whole point of the lawsuit is that Michael Jackson is not the creator. So the point of the lawsuit is that this was a, a false advertisement. But the estate's uh, response is that under U.S. law, they have an absolute right to name Michael Jackson as the creator of the music. I mean, it's, it, the whole thing is mind-boggling, really. If this is, if they win on this argument, I mean, it's just extremely disturbing, in my opinion. So they then offer, they after all of this, they offer a second argument in the documents where they claim, quote, neither the estate nor Sony Music claimed Michael Jackson performed lead vocals to the press. Plaintiff attempts to attribute to these, to these defendants a statement of fact they did not make. Neither said that Jackson performed the Casio tracks. Rather, Sony and the estate said they performed an investigation and were confident in their opinion that it was Jackson performing. By their nature, they are non-actionable opinions. Jackson died and none of the defendants was in a position to have actual knowledge, nor did they represent that they did. So their first argument is that they were offering merely an opinion on uh, a matter of public interest, which is protected speech. And then their second argument is that Actually, we never said uh, Michael Jackson was the performer anyway. Of course, this would appear to be disputed by the fact that the back of the CD says that the CD contains nine vocal performances by Michael Jackson. So they claim that the video advert cannot be used because it referred to the album as a whole and not to the Casio tracks specifically. They go on to say, quote, it is undisputed that at least seven out of the ten songs on the album contained vocal tracks performed by Michael Jackson. Accordingly, there is nothing false nor deceptive about a statement characterising Michael as a Michael Jackson album. No reasonable consumer would understand such a statement to mean that Jackson performed every portion of every vocal track for every song on a ten-song album. So now they're saying, even if the songs are fake, it doesn't matter because seven of them are real. That's, that's my reading of that quote. I get that on artists' albums, singers other than the artist might perform background vocals. So I kind of get yeah, where totally. they're going with that, but it still doesn't make sense to me. No, no, because it, we're talking about lead vocals, and we're not only talking about lead vocals, but we're talking about lead vocals which is, is clearly inferred from the back of the CD are performed by Michael Jackson. It says this mm. album contains nine previously unreleased Michael Jackson vocals so a, a hefty proportion of their argument in these documents appears to me to directly uh, to be directly undermined by the very uh, words on the back of the cd cover now i'll move to the documents which have been filed for eddie cassio james port and angelixon they basically parrot the same argument they say their speech was non-commercial because it was protected in law because it was an opinion on a matter of public interest uh, in defining public interest, they state that Michael Jackson's status uh, as the world's biggest pop star made it a matter of public interest, as did the fact that he was the highest earning dead celebrity in the world. They say, quote, in addition, as a focus of controversy, 
Jackson's Wikipedia page is the fifth most edited of all time, surpassing the Catholic Church, Jesus Christ, and Adolf Hitler. Consequently, the Angelics and Defendants statements that Jackson sang lead vocals on the Casio tracks were certainly about a person in the public eye. Moreover, the Angelics and Defendants purported statements were about a matter of public interest, as controversy has surrounded the Casio tracks since the inception of the album. Even before the song's release, numerous people familiar with Michael Jackson's voice disputed the authenticity of the Casio tracks, including Michael Jackson's mother, son, daughter, three nephews, three brothers, and two former producers. This is their own court document, so that what they're actually saying, they're saying the fact that the vocals appear to be fake resulted in a controversy because there was a controversy that made it a matter of public interest, and because it was a matter of public interest, we are protected in law in our uh, statements that Michael Jackson's the vocalist, because that's an opinion on a, on a matter of public interest. So they're actually arguing that the fact that the people believe the songs are fake means they shouldn't be able to be sued about the songs being fake which is just the most bizarre argument I've ever heard. Then they go on to, they parrot Sony in the States argument again about naming the creators of artworks. And then they, uh, they argue basically that because they are named as artists who are involved in the creation of this artwork, they are protected in themselves as well. So effectively, they're arguing that because they've been named as complicit in the creation of a fraudulent artwork, that should preclude them from being able to be sued for then duping people into buying the fraudulent artwork by advertising it. So this, I mean, the, these documents are just mind-bending. As I say, um, if if this comes to court and they win on the basis of this argument, I will be extremely disturbed. Basically, they're making an argument that anybody could record a fake song and existing statutes in the American Constitution would prevent them from ever being held to account for it. Mm. Agreed. Thank you for that awesome summary, Charles. I really appreciate it. I'm interested, like, obviously Q and I, we, we, you know, we've given our opinions a lot on this topic on the show in previous episodes, and I've certainly got some pretty strong opinions about these new documents as well. But I'd like to know, Andy, what you think about, about this development. Yeah, I, um, you know, read the documents as well and found it interesting what their argument was. I think the, the distinction that needs to be drawn, and unfortunately it's a distinction that always happens, but these are legal arguments. They're not necessarily presenting proof. So I think what I got, the gist of the argument, was that their opinions about it being Michael uttered through, you know, on the Oprah show, on through press releases, et cetera, et cetera, were opinions and therefore opinions cannot be seen as being commercial for commercial purposes. It, you know, as, as Charles said, it's all pretty, you know, mind-bending about the way that they're, they're seeming to worm their way around. Well, these songs are undisputed, so therefore it is a Michael album, whereas these three songs in question, whatever. I mean, it just seems, you know, I, I think in the, the fan community, whichever side you're on, whether you believe it's 100% Michael, whether you believe it's not Michael at all, I think it needs to be resolved and I applaud people in the fan community actually taking this step and, and pursuing it and holding them accountable to say, look, there's obviously been some question about the validity of the vocals and surely that should be the first red flag. 
you know, I've, I've heard tracks in development. I've heard a track that was very similar to Monster that had Michael's vocals on it, um, uttering the words Monster in a, a similar phrasing and things like that. So, you know, the, there's room in either way in terms of was it something Michael was working on but didn't record? Was it something, you know, it's all, it just gets down to the uh, a myriad of differing opinions and, and mm. uh, hopefully what this case um, resolves is tangible evidential proof that says, you know, on either party, on either side, saying, yep, this is definitely not Michael's vocals or yes, this is definitely Michael's vocals because here are, you know, three work products in, in process or here is what we did to it, a demonstration of how we, you know, manipulated the vocal or whatever. But yeah, I think it's, a, you know, unfortunately a dark chapter and, you know, I think if everybody had their time over, you would hope, you know, the, the Michael album would just be a, a, an album minus those three songs. Just uh, hopefully we get we get a clear resolution on this, and I hope it comes down to to being fact rather than just being, you know, uh, manipulation of of uh, legal arguments to uh, to try to avoid actually addressing the issue. I'm I'm really looking forward to that if it does go to trial, that we see people on the stand that were involved in this album and the creation of the album and the recording of the songs that we have on it, so that we can hear firsthand from these people what happened. Uh, during the recording and the uh, process and the conception process of the songs. It's going to be fascinating to learn a lot about it. It was interesting to hear you say before about the version of Monster that you'd heard that had Michael Jackson singing on it without going into too much detail that's <laughs> might get me into trouble. there are there, I will say that there's songs on that album, in my opinion, that are based on songs that Michael recorded or was was working on in the late 2000s. Yeah, there, there definitely seems to be similarities between what I've heard and, and the final product. Yeah. Now, whether there's a manipulation at play or whether there's actual recordings, you know, that's that's what this case hopefully will will uh, will point out. What is interesting, I think, though, is their argument kind of falls flat in there saying that they're just offering an opinion, and therefore yes. it's a, uh, on a non-commercial whatever the the way that they're um, trying to get around it. But surely one could argue that if based on them saying, yes, our research has shown that it is 100% Michael Jackson on these songs, uh, which is what the press releases were seen to be doing. And the press releases came out a month before by their own admission, a month before uh, the release of the Michael album. Then surely if you purchased the album based on that opinion being presented as fact, then that's when it becomes a commercial um, an issue. I don't know whether legally that is correct, but that just seems to, as the layperson, be my take on it. That if you're saying, you know, this uh, this album contains, you know, Michael Jackson previous unheard recordings, that that's what you expect when you purchase it. Exactly. There's there would be. Oh, I am a hundred percent certain that people that looked at the back of that album cover before they bought it in a record store, there's a very high chance they would have been influenced by the words on that album to buy the album. I know yeah. if I was, I know if I was like, if, I mean, I'm a pretty, I'm a hardcore Michael Jackson fan. So I, you know, I'm a little bit different, but if I was walking into a shop and I didn't know much about the artist, but I'd heard there was a posthumous album out by them, I would be comforted by the words on the back of that CD saying that it was completely them. And I would probably buy it because of that. That's commercial speech in my opinion or commercial. What, what was it called, Charles? They're saying it's not commercial. Uh, they're saying it's non-commercial speech non -commercial and they're raising, um, 
One of the examples they raise is um, a, a case involving Lance Armstrong, the uh, the cyclist, um, where somebody tried to sue an author because somewhere on their book jacket it described Lance Armstrong as having won the Tour de France, uh, whereas he had since been discredited and it turned out that he had uh, been using drugs and therefore his title had been stripped. So they said it was a uh, false advertising. I've read through the documents. They, they don't seem to be citing any case law which is directly comparable to the situation that exists here. So what you have here is a lawsuit which says these songs are not performed by Michael Jackson and the claim that they are performed by Michael Jackson is a lie. And then you have these the defendants responding and saying we are absolutely entitled to list uh, the author of an artwork under the American Constitution. Now, well, yes, you are. Of course you are. But what? But the way that they're manipulating the argument would mean that it was legal to uh, counterfeit. Essentially, they're saying if they're making the argument that even if it's Michael, even if it's not Michael Jackson, we're allowed to say that it is because it's only an opinion and it's non-commercial speech. That would mean that I could release a Michael Jackson album tomorrow and it could just be you know, me banging a dish with a, a wooden spoon. It, it means that anyone could, you know, if, if they're saying anyone has the right to list anyone as an artist on, a, on an artwork, that, that surely, it surely can't be right. And if that is what the law says, then the law is insane. But then again, the law sometimes is insane. So when it comes to these things, I just, I never make any assumptions. To me, it would be crazy if this lawsuit was thrown out on the basis of the comments which are made in these documents. But at the same time, I see decisions made in courtrooms all the time, which to me are crazy, but that's just the way the law is written. I'm actually just trying to find on uh, the internet the credits for just for a breaking news example. I thought that there was actually someone else credited in that track, at least anyway. Yeah, James Port is credited in backing vocals, I believe. Okay, it, and it specifically says backing vocals. Well, yeah, I believe so. I believe it says backing vocals, Michael Jackson, James Port. Uh, I don't have the the the, uh, the liner notes in front of me, but from memory, that's that's what it said. Okay. Because I they also even credited Dave Grohl on the album for playing guitar, and he came out quite angrily and said, "Well, that's really pissed me off because I actually did record." Drums. Drums. drums yeah. Sorry, drums. Yeah, my apologies. Drums. drums for the Lenny Lenny Kravitz track on that album, and they never used it at all, and then they still credited him for it. So the credits yeah, are all over the shop. Yeah, look, and that's not the first time that, that there's been liner notes that have made errors one way or the other because, as uh, you know, Brad Sundberg has mentioned recently, liner notes are generally written in the process of the actual recording. So sometimes liner, liner notes will go out with wrong lyrics because the artist changed the lyrics by the time they get down to finishing their final pass on vocals but the liner notes have been written you know three weeks beforehand so liner note errors aren't uncommon but i think what it goes to is yeah whether or not they're you know pushing dave grohl as being a featured artist on it when under everyone's uh you know knowledge Dave Grohl's come out and said no that's not me i did record a drum snare and i recorded some drums and whatever but that's not me on the track. 
I'm just looking at the um, personnel now on Wikipedia, and I, I know it's Wikipedia, and I'm not sure it's exactly what's on the liner notes for the Michael album, but it says that Michael Jackson wrote the song with Eddie Cassio and James Port. <laughs> it says that he produced the song with Teddy Riley and Angelicson. And it says that he sung background vocals with James Port, but it doesn't say anything about lead vocals. That's yeah, that's what I was trying to remember, and I couldn't because it's been many, many years since I peeked at the liner notes in a record shop. Mm. That it doesn't that actually a- have credits for lead vocals. Now, is that across the board on all songs, or just those three? Well, I'm just on the breaking news Wikipedia page. I'd, right. I'd have to go to the other ones to see that. I just always thought it was odd that it never had a credit for lead vocals. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and an th- argument would be that liner notes are after purchase, so they're not actually yeah. a, a point of encouraging purchase. Whereas what's written on the back of the CD, one could argue, does Very encourage clear. purchase. Hmm. Yeah, I think that if this does uh, progress past the, the anti-slap lawsuit stage and go to trial, you know, if if they're so certain then just put evidence out which they've never ever 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 done and the statement they had about producers or people in that room people have come out in that that they said oh yeah they all said it was michael people have come out since then so we never said that at all people in that room said that no it wasn't the case so like that's the only evidence they've really submitted ever and even that has been discredited they've never given any other evidence at all in my opinion because there is none. Yeah, they've never produced a single piece of evidence which connects Michael Jackson to any of these songs. Not one handwritten lyric, not one outtake vocal or demo or uh, dictaphone recording, not a photograph, not a video, nothing. There is nothing which connects Michael Jackson to a single one of the 12 Casio songs. Even though... um, Frank Cassio's friend Roger Friedman uh, insisted the evidence was to be released uh, to the public. It never was released to the public. And uh, I'm aware of um, ongoing investigations, which I'm not involved in, by the way, into these songs. And, and I am, I am uh, given to understand that there is uh, a mounting uh, case which demonstrates that Michael Jackson had no involvement in these songs ever uh, and that there is direct proof actually which which counters the argument that he was involved and I look forward to that hopefully being made public during the case uh, if it comes to trial. It's no uh, secret that um, forensic audio tests have been conducted in this case and um, and I look forward to the results of those tests being made public at some stage. Because the other results never were made public. Exactly. And why wouldn't you? And the, the when the estate was questioned about why they didn't release the results of those tests, they made some crazy comment about because it's not fair to because it's not fair to put the testers names into the public domain or something even though these are people who have been specifically contracted to do that test in probably the most high profile dispute ever over the authenticity of a vocal you know that was a crazy argument to make it's not fair to to drag the tester into the public sphere the fact is they were losing money hand over fist i mean that album was should have been one of the biggest albums of the year. You know, the first posthumous Michael Jackson album 
riding the crest of the wave of that massive resurgence in popularity after he passed away. And that album ended up in bargain bins within weeks of being released because nobody was buying it. It charted terribly. It fell immediately out of view and they couldn't give it away. It was sitting in the bargain bin at, you know, a quarter of its original uh, price and still people were not buying it. Um, All they had to do was release one piece of evidence. All they had to do was release the results of those tests and they could have averted all of that. And we were we were told that the Oprah interview would include evidence, but it would finally we would see the proof of Michael Jackson involvement in these songs. And it didn't happen. You know, you have to ask yourselves, is, is it possible that Michael Jackson could record 12 songs and there would be no evidence of it in existence? And if there is evidence in existence, then why would they not release it? The whole thing makes no sense. The only thing they showed in the Oprah interview was a photograph from that period of time with a microphone stand or something with a pillow at the bottom of it and Michael wasn't even in the photo. Exactly, and that could have been taken any time. Any time. There's no, yeah. Yeah. The strongest evidence they've got, it's not even evidence, but the strongest thing that they've got that they didn't even mention in the in the Oprah interview is that Michael did actually record legitimate songs with Eddie Casio. For example, the keys on For All Time and the vocals in Wannabe Starting Something 2008. He recorded those with Eddie Casio and released them in his lifetime. Yeah, and they sounded like Michael Jackson, funnily enough. Mm. Funny that. Funny that. Okay, are we ready to move on? Indeed. I I just wanted to say I liked your little video you put up during the break, Jamin. Video? Yeah, when you were browsing in JB (laughs) Hi-Fi. Yeah, it's kind of a little tradition of mine to hide that album behind other artists. Yeah, I think I I do the same. I, I hide it far further away than what you do, which is a real shame because there is actually truly some incredible songs yes. on that album, yes. which um, it's a real shame that they've been lost and buried in this self-inflicted controversy, which could have been completely avoided. Absolutely. I remember hearing um, Behind the Mask, which I, I do really wish I'd heard the um, the original before it was overproduced for this release, but that had me in absolute mess of tears because the vocals on it mm. were so incredible. Um, so, yeah, it's a real shame that those other songs are lost. But, yeah, next time I'll, JB, I'll continue my little tradition of moving and hiding the album. So thank you very much, Charles, for giving us an update on the latest court documents. You do a far better job of unpacking them than that I could ever do. So thank you very much. We look forward to you coming back on the show when we get more documents coming through regarding the uh, Casio case and if people uh, want to find those documents to read them themselves uh, all you have to do is go to themjcast.com slash Casio case and you'll find all the documents there ready for you to engage with and learn from. Thanks for your discussion there guys thanks for sharing your thoughts as well Andy. No dramas. And uh, of course a big 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 thank you uh, to to Vera, who actually started this whole uh, case against the the tracks, she's uh, very brave, and and uh, my hats off to Vera. Thank you. Don't you ever come around here Don't wanna stay away
Dangerous tour second leg rehearsals have leaked. Thank you, MJ Beats. They're so good to us, aren't they? Oh, they give us a lot. <laughs> I just Where remember... the hell is this stuff coming from? Uh, there was rumours before Christmas that there was some dude who worked for Michael who had all this stuff on VHS or something and then someone found him in his warehouse after he passed away or something. I don't know how true any of that is. But MJ Beats has certainly got their hands on a lot of... Uh, a lot of footage because we saw before Christmas at least 10 different things leaked video and audio. And now we've got a few more just in the last seven days. So what's this uh, second leg tour rehearsal orange shirt leak, Jamin? Well, the fans seem to be classifying these different dangerous tour rehearsals by the color shirt that he's wearing. So you can see the orange shirt rehearsal and the green shirt rehearsal (laughs) and the, uh, the second leg rehearsals where Michael's wearing an orange shirt is a, uh, collection of videos of michael rehearsing songs he's uh, sorry rehearsing dangerous actually multiple times in the video uh it's an interesting watch he's he doesn't seem 100 percent in it like he's not singing all out at all he's stepping through the the moves um it looks like a very sort of typical sort of michael jackson rehearsal where he's not giving it everything but he's more i think it's blocking camera angles getting the dancers learning the choreography getting a feel for the staging and everything so um yeah it's an interesting watch it's it's kind of cool to hear michael singing dangerous rather than lip syncing it but the these um what's been dubbed as the orange shirt dangerous rehearsals are by far the least impressive of the leaks that have happened in the last few days but still definitely interesting to watch in my opinion who else has had a chance to see i have been working crazy flat chat hours this week so i haven't even had a chance to barely look at these leaks yeah i uh managed to to catch it um yeah i agree there's other leaks that have come in the last couple of days that are potentially more entertaining and more um you know, uh, impressive seeing Michael up there. These ones uh, are interesting just to see him kind of pace through Dangerous and, and see how it was going to be incorporated into the show. But, yeah, it's not necessarily him at his finest. But then again, it is rehearsals. And uh, as we know, you don't necessarily run uh, for the 100 metres every time you are you're for the Olympic record, every time you, you go out to, to, to race. You do it when it matters. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to get an insight in the creative process. And, uh, yeah, but uh, there are some other leaks that have come out that I think are, are more entertaining. So speaking of that, that would probably be, what, the green shirt rehearsal? Yeah, the green shirt rehearsal. And Andy might be able to tell us a little bit more about this. I, I'm not really sure, but I... Um... I'm pretty sure it's from roughly the same period that, like, you know the footage that's already out there that's been out for years that you could buy on DVD from MJ DVD sites back in the day of the Dangerous Tour rehearsals where he is wearing that green shirt uh, and performing at Neverland Valley Ranch. I think they set the stage up there for him to practice there. And um, 
Yeah, I don't know if it's from exactly that same rehearsal period of time or even the same rehearsals, but it is, yeah, definitely far more impressive than the orange shirt rehearsals. Andy, do you know if there's a connection between those old rehearsals that we've seen and this new leak? Yeah, so the previous the previous leak uh, was known as Tape 1, uh, and this, uh, the green shirt, I guess, is known now as Tape 2. Which came before which? I mean, it would seem that Tape 2 was latter, but whether it was the day later or the afternoon of, um, there's definitely certain similarities between the two performances in terms of set list and things like that. What is, for me, fantastic is you're getting moments of um, you know, seeing songs rehearsed for Dangerous that didn't necessarily make, it, make, make its way through all the performances. So you're seeing Bad being performed, which I believe Michael actually did do at the, uh, the Wembley shows in the UK. But you're hearing Michael with live vocals and it's, uh, he's you know, in good spirits. He's uh, really getting into the tracks. He's singing a lot of the songs which didn't end up being live during the actual tour mm. uh, live. So you're getting to, to, to hear what they would have sounded like night after night had he gone that route of, of doing live vocal performances for every song on every night. Really worth something to check out, especially for, for Bad, for Black or White and for Man in the Mirror. And that diagonal stage. It's out of control. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like, I don't know, obviously all the band were walking up it and kind of heading off. And to me, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the ending of This Is It with MJ Air. But, yeah, I don't know what the concept was in terms of the, the stage being angled up and everyone kind of trudging up that hill to kind of exit stage left. But obviously that was uh, quickly shunted aside and um, Rocket Man was kind of given the, the all clear. So, uh, yeah, just an interesting way of, again, seeing how they put the show together, how they looked at how they could use the stage a little bit more dynamically and, and see what it would give to the performance. And it looks like maybe it's imminent that we might get the full Oslo show soon. There's been a few leaks from that. Um, yeah, so MJ Beats has been slowly leaking those out song by song and Lavelle Smith Jr. has been a big uh, supporter of uh, those videos coming out, sharing a lot of them on his Instagram account, which is getting a lot of attention. Uh, you know, it's an interesting show. I actually think it's probably... Oh, it's, it's definitely... Um, an odd show to watch for two reasons, I think. Number one is that it's in broad daylight, the whole show. So it's really weird watching a Michael Jackson concert with full daylight. That blows my mind. For the whole time. It's actually like watching him at a festival rather than a, uh, like one of his own shows. Or the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, or the Super Bowl. And the stage is really weird. Like it's a much smaller version of the Dangerous Tour stage than what he'd used at Bucharest. Uh, it doesn't, it, it's actually got like open sides and it, you can see like out the distance of the, the field where it was performing or the stadium um, through the stage. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very pared back, smaller looking stage. I think that must have been to do with logistical requirements because we know that the Oslo show had 35,000 people watching. So it wasn't like a small show in terms of number of people there, but the logistics must have meant that they had to use that smaller stage. Um, the other weird thing about it I found was that there's this odd dichotomy of Michael dancing brilliantly to the point where I know I was talking with Damien Shields yesterday about this, friend of the show Damien Shields, and he was saying that he thought that it might even be some of the best dancing that he'd ever seen Michael do. The, the, how sharp the moves were. 
just just how finely tuned those moves were throughout the entire show. And he's so correct when you watch it. He's, Michael is physically on fire during the Oslo show. But the vocals are some of the worst I've heard him ever give throughout a show. Like, oh, sorry, no, I'm going to rephrase that. Not the, not the vocals, the music. Like, whoever's in charge of his mic volume and whoever's in charge of when backing tracks come in to be played for songs is like, I'm pretty sure they got yelled at that night or fired because <laughs> it is really bad. Like human nature, the backing audio comes in like a second or two seconds after it's meant to. And then Michael has to extend this move out that he usually does for a little bit and then kind of starts laughing that he has to do it longer. Um, he's at some points during the show, and, and you got to remember this is in front of 35,000 people. Michael Jackson is pointing at the sound desk telling them to raise the audio up and at one point actually yells hey at the guy in charge of the sound to make sure his his mic goes up louder. So in terms of audio, it's a really scattershot show and it's not a professional um well the songs that I've seen anyway are not on not on the same level of professionalism that you see in other Michael Jackson shows. But visually his dancing is maybe better than I've ever seen him dance before. So, yeah, it's an interesting show to watch. Definitely something that fans will want to engage with. Charles, have you seen any of these leaks at all? Yeah, I've uh, I've flicked through all of them. I think the most interesting by far is the green shirt rehearsal. Um, It's nice to hear him singing the songs live. Uh, He seems to me in in this tape two to be going a little harder than he was in tape one. Um, Certainly vocally, he seems to be really... uh, putting in a lot of effort and that's nice to watch um in terms of the show i mean i've never been a dangerous tour fan um i mean for me michael the genius performer was something which existed from destiny to bad and after that it fell off a cliff for me personally i have a a strong strong aversion to lip syncing i i really i think it should be illegal and uh, <laughs> I t- I literally, I think it should be illegal or um, legal only if you prominently advertise it at every ticket vendor um, point of sale on every poster, every TV advert, every website. It should be prominently uh, signposted. I really I'm I'm massively opposed to lip syncing. And for me, that kills the dangerous tour immediately. But also. I mean, when you consider that it was like four years between the last bad tour show and the first dangerous show, to me, the uh, uh, he just looks like he's aged about 10 years, both visually and in terms of his performance. I think he's that there's no spontaneity, really. I mean, there's little bits in certain shows, but really, if you look at the level of spontaneity on the bad tour, and just if you look at how much fun he seems to be having on the bad tour, he smiles a lot, he laughs a lot, he jokes around with the band and the crew, he just seems to be having a really good time. And by the dangerous show, that's all gone. It's like this... um, it's almost like a music box where you just wind it up and then it does the same thing every night with almost no interaction, no deviation, no spontaneity. And for me, a lot of the um, the fun of a live performance comes from being able to see that the artist is enjoying what they're doing. And I think that basically disappeared from Michael Jackson's performances from the Dangerous Tour onwards. 
I mean, it's an it's an interesting watch the Oslo show just because it is so fraught with these uh, cock ups, just cock up after cock up in terms of audio. But I would say that is what happens, or that is what that is the risk that you run when you start relying on pre records and lip syncing. You know, you you're reliant on that technology working because otherwise you look like a a Wally. You know, this doesn't happen. That doesn't happen if you play fully live with a band. And um, and for me, if that's not what you're doing, then I'm just not really interested as a as a live music fan. If it's not if it's not fully live with a band, then you know, I'm not buying a ticket. So um, for me, the rehearsals are the are the gem here. The green shirt rehearsal, I really enjoyed that. But the gig, I just I'm not interested. Thank you, Charles. Cool. All right. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of leaks that have come out. If you want to grab these leaks, they're really easy to find. You can go to the MJ Beats Facebook page. They're all catalogued there and on their YouTube channel. Or alternatively, just go to the MJCast.com and in the show notes for episode 24, you'll find uh, links to all of these YouTube leaks where you can watch the Dangerous Rehearsals, both versions, and the Dangerous Tour in Oslo. And we'll be sure to update you guys with any further Michael Jackson leaks in upcoming upcoming episodes as well uh just quickly before we move on to our next uh sorry on to our discussion our main discussion topic of the episode uh there is a book coming out soon it's called the dangerous philosophies of michael jackson it's already available for pre-order uh it looks like an excellent book it's all about um michael jackson's artistry uh it's actually written by a fellow podcaster elizabeth amasu who also puts out the michael jackson's dream lives on podcast in connection with the michael jackson academia studies website looks like a really good book it's a collection of 21 academic essays on a range of topics it's coming out august 28th Uh, takes a uh, sophisticated and i'm quoting here from their website but it takes a sophisticated academic approach to understanding jackson's art and life providing insights into his entire body of work from a perspective never before available outside of music and culture journals. I'm really excited about this book. Uh, We're going to cover it a little bit more in depth as we move closer towards its release at the end of the year. But I I personally just think the more books that are out there on Michael's art, the better. And uh, Andy, I'd probably hazard a guess that you'd agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, you know, books of this quality where it's uh, kind of more of an academic study and looking at getting into the guts of the actual artistry, I think, uh, are books that we need. We've had enough of the uh, the Sullivans and uh, the likes who are, you know, rehashing the stories that either we know or that the tabloid, tabloids told us. So it's good to, good to read um, substantive works that are about the art. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting to see that Elizabeth is going to be talking more than just about the music. She's going to be discussing the costumes, clothing, poetry, and uh, all of his other works as well. So it should be very, very interesting. Q, you might probably want to buy this one as well, I guess, to add to your book collection. Oh, my God, it's growing so much. I even got some off mum and dad for Christmas, which (laughs) I hadn't actually planned to buy myself. But then they got them for me. I was like, okay, now I've got no more shelf space on my bookshelves. Yeah. Oh, I think it looks pretty cool. I'm hoping actually we can get Elizabeth on the show at some point where we might do a special or something about this. Yeah, I've got to listen to the new episode of their podcast yet. 
Yeah, it's a great but, podcast. Um, it's, I enjoyed the first one. Yeah, this new one, episode three, it's longer than what they've done before. It's 40 minutes long, and they actually talk all about what Michael Jackson academia studies actually is as a concept, which is fascinating to, to uh, learn about. Cool. So that's on iTunes if you guys want to go and have a look for that. And we'll also put a link in the show notes. From Michael Jackson. Off the Wall features five hit singles. Off the Wall. Yes, it's more of that Michael Jackson magic. Off the Wall. Another thriller from Michael Jackson. Hey, I'm Lavelle Smith Jr. Thanks for joining us on the MJ Cast. So, who's had a chance to watch the Spike Lee Off the Wall documentary? Yeah. <laughs> you, sound, <laughs> you, you sound so enthusiastic about it, Charles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen it and I, I liked it. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I thought it was really cool. It was good, but it wasn't. Great. Yeah, yeah. Definitely wasn't a five-star affair. Something that had huge, massive, incredibly huge potential and we got we got a taste, really. Yeah. Yeah, it was similar to Bad 25, I thought, like in, in structure and format. Look, I, I actually, I'll admit, I walked away from it feeling very dif- differently to what I thought I was going to. I was going into it with a really... Uh, low expectations. I, I just thought it was just going to be a little bit of footage, not much else. But I was really surprised with the amount of footage they had in there from you know the the time periods they were dealing with. Really good, high quality footage of Michael in different interviews and performances and things like that. So I was kind of excited about that, and I was excited how positive it was. And I walked away feeling very positive about the documentary as a whole. But like EQ, I thought that it had big potential that it didn't meet. And that came down to, for me, the fact that even though they were doing these incredible things like returning to the Triumph Tour very frequently and returning to that beautiful Havenhurst interview that I'd never seen before with Michael, they just, Spike Lee just has this thing where he just relies way too heavily on talking heads, I found. I don't mind talking heads. I think in this documentary, it was the amount of talking heads like the the group of people you go i said not just david burns (laughs) yeah from talking heads anyway (laughs) no exactly (laughs) oh my god i can't believe i was party on that one (laughs) (laughs) oh my god (laughs) see i'm with all these highbrow people and i'm like what (laughs) anyway i just think like have talking heads and relevant ones but there was just like, what, a roster of like 50 of them? Yes, too many. Too many. Just have like four and five maybe and then skip to them when you need it. But they had so many and the editing of them was like flash, 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 flash between all these different talking heads. It was like, oh, my God, I'm getting dizzy from all these different people and trying to remember who they all are. And, oh, okay, there's Rosie Perez, an actress, and John Lugazama or that guy, um, and Kobe Bryant. There was so many, and I'm like, are these people really relevant? Like, seriously, like Jenkins said, give me Alicia Keys. But even that, she's not, like, for me, if I was creating a documentary, and I'm a big fan of documentaries, I would only ever really include people that were historically connected to what we were talking about. 
So, like, anyone, the songwriters on Off the Wall, the producers, the people who worked with Michael, just people integral to that era that were involved. Um, I get the inspiration thing and how there's a kind of a connection there, but I don't know. And and where possible as well, if you have to use talking heads, in my opinion, use talking heads like archival footage from the time so it puts the viewer right back in the moment when it was happening. I was so happy to see, like, Gamble and Huff. Yeah, that that was great. Those Those sort of things were cool. My other problem with it wasn't just the talking heads. I don't like the song-by-song song format. I don't think it works. Um, it just is not... Uh, like, the first half of the documentary to me was really strong. The whole, like, from Jackson 5 to, um, you know, don't... Oh, sorry, to Off the Wall, period. Like, that that was documented really well. I thought it had a great narrative thread running through it of Michael wanting to kind of... Um, break out and explore his creativity independently. That was excellent. And then it just felt like Spike got trapped and locked into this song-by-song routine that was with Bad 25 as well. And it just doesn't suit it to me because not every song's worthy of having a section. Like Girlfriend was in there for like 30 seconds or something. And it's like he got trapped into using this format. I, I thought it would have been better if there was... It would have been better if there was a stronger narrative thread in there about... Michael expanding creatively or maybe, you know, the tour or having to balance his work with the brothers and the solo stuff with the tour. And, you know, they, I, I don't know. I just didn't like the format of the track by track thing as well. But that's me. I think it's difficult. I mean, look, I can understand why he's kind of wedded to that because when you're dealing with an album in particular, you're kind of having to, to throw that narrative of the album as it's, you know, his track one, his track two, his track three. So I get that. Um, you know, for me, there were lost opportunities, as as you say. I, you know, either pull archival footage, and that's what they had to do, obviously, with Quincy. Um, it was great to see Bruce Swedeen there. I know that Spike's first edit of this, uh, I think, went for over two hours, and then it got trimmed down to like ninety minutes, um, which is which a shame, is not, I think. Huge shame. Yeah, but, but not uncommon for documentary films. But um, definitely a shame, and you would hope that you know that's what the Blu-ray should have. Mm. Um, um, you know, there are opportunities, you know, with Girlfriend, with uh, It's the Falling in Love, with Stevie talking about I Can't Help It, that seemed like they got really truncated because there wasn't necessarily Michael performing the song or there wasn't Michael, uh, you know, talking about the song himself. Um, I would have loved to have hear, heard from yes. Paul McCartney um, talking about Girlfriend and how he recorded oh, yeah. it for London Town and how it contrasts to, to Michael's take on it. You know, for me... I'm always a big fan of, I don't know whether you guys know, the classic albums documentary series that, that came out in the kind of mid-90s to early 2000s. A similar format where they would take a great album and sit with the producers at the mixing console and basically go track by track. So they were playing you stuff that didn't make the mix. They were playing you stuff that you didn't really know was highlighted. And to me, that's a perfect way to actually explore an album. This format... You know, I think they took the lessons from Bad 25 and definitely improved on it, but it's not necessarily the best, potentially the best representation that they could have been of, of this album. But having said that, I know as a fan, you know, we will always have our own point of view about how things should be done and, or how I would do it. If I was going to do a documentary, I would do it this way. You know, Spike has his own structure and is kind of, you know, wedded to that and within those confines, you know, did a, a decent job. He, he locked himself, I think, into as well only using material from Off the Wall or before 
of Michael Jackson. There's great, great footage of Michael from after 1979 talking about the songs on that album or even performing them. So, for example, and I'm not going to mention the history tour off the wall section that (laughs) should definitely not ever be shown on film ever. Um, But the part of This Is It, where Michael's actually doing a quick vocal rendition in rehearsal of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Like, that would have been awesome in there. And I, I get that he wanted to keep it in the context of the late 70s, but there was there was opportunities to expand on those songs where, with Michael Jackson himself that Spike missed. Mm. I Charles? Okay, well... Um... Here we go, everyone. <laughs> Strap yourselves in. Well, I mean, I, I'm coming at this. Um, I, I, I'm, com- I'm tackling this from two perspectives. One, I'm tackling it as a fan, and the other is I'm tackling it as a, a journalist and um, as somebody who, although I've not gone into it professionally, I did study um, video journalism at university, and um, and so some of the points I'll make are kind of technical points, but to me they just scream out at me. But I think I think you can divide this film into two sections, and the and the two sections are the contemporaneous footage, a lot of which was brand new, nobody's ever seen it before, like that footage of Michael at Havenhurst, and uh, a lot of the tour footage, which was magnificent. And then on the other hand, you have Spike's work. Um, which kind of was like padding and in many cases it just really did not um, justify its own inclusion in the uh, in the documentary I didn't think and um, you know when when I watch this I'm watching it thinking this is Spike Lee who created um, when the levees broke which is like one of the most respected and acclaimed documentaries of, of modern times so you know all about uh, Katrina and um it, you know that was an incredible piece of work i actually have uh i have here in my house a signed poster i'm a huge fan of uh, spike lee's but these documentaries he's doing with the estate i'm not i'm i'm just not enthralled by it. i mean bad i thought was a catastrophe bad 25 the documentary i thought it was hideous a, an absolute disaster um pretty much from start to finish this is is not as bad. I mean, it's not as bad as bad. Um, <laughs> it's you know it's shorter, but I, I think it suffers uh, not only as as has been already mentioned from too many talking heads, but it's about the quality of the material that those talking heads are providing, and um, and in many cases, I just didn't feel they contributed anything of value to the documentary. You know, so is it, I'm watching this and I'm going, so you, Spike Lee, have got in your hands, at your fingertips, something which Michael Jackson fans would give their right arm for, which is never before seen footage of Michael Jackson performing live on stage. And you keep cutting away from this incredible discovery to offer us triviality and i've already mentioned it on twitter but the moment that 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 was in the uh the teaser clip where you've got this footage of michael jackson at his most vibrant michael jackson as he's just emerged as the michael jackson that we come to know where he's finding his 
uh, identity as a dancer and as a live performer, performing Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, this incredible footage. Nobody's ever seen this footage before. And then you cut away from that footage to Questlove saying, I thought he was saying forks. And you go, where is the benefit in that? What is that contributing to this documentary? It's contributing nothing. It's triviality. And almost everything that was contributed by certain talking heads in the documentary was rubbish. It was of no value, no journalistic value. It did not tell us anything. It told us nothing. What you had really was um, a parade of people who were all saying the same thing on a loop. Which So you're showing this footage of Michael Jackson, then you cut to the weekend, and what he's basically saying is, uh, Michael Jackson's really good. And then you show a little bit more clip, and then you cut back to Kobe Bryant, and he says, Michael Jackson is really good. And then you cut away, <laughs> and you cut back again, and you cut back to Questlove, and he's going, Michael Jackson, man, he was really good. And, you know, it's just the same thing on a loop. They're saying it in a slightly different way. But what is the point of that? It's a, it's completely superficial. That was my problem with this documentary, really, is it's so superficial. You've got an hour and a half documentary, and probably half an hour of that documentary is flushed down the toilet. It's nothing. It's just an endless feedback loop of these minor celebrities just saying, yeah, Michael Jackson's really good. And it, I just it's, it seemed like the objective was to get as many famous people's names into the press release as possible. That was the way it felt for me. What did Rosie Perez add to that documentary? Nothing. Nothing. She told us nothing about the album. She told us nothing about the impact of the album. All she spoke about in pretty much every clip was the fact that she found Michael Jackson attractive. And so what? What does it is? It's just rubbish. So, oh, and there, there was another issue that I had as well, which is that Spike Lee just lets people just talk shit and he doesn't he doesn't challenge them. So, for instance, you have Barry Gordy. At one point, Barry Gordy says of Michael Jackson at Motown, he was not at all concerned about the work. So he's talking about the amount of work that Michael Jackson did as a kid at Motown. He was not at all concerned about the work. That's the direct quote from Barry Gordy. Well, how many interviews have you seen Michael Jackson give where he says, I would be in the recording studio and I was crying. And the reason I was crying was because I was looking out of the window and I could see all the kids playing in the park across the road. So we we know from Michael Jackson that that's bullshit. But why? So why is Spike Lee including it in his film? I don't get it. I don't get what the point of that is. It's... um. It's rubbish. It's rubbish journalism. It's, it's crap. And the other thing I really didn't like was the Eddie Murphy thing. I've, you know, She's Out of My Life is a fantastic song. And it felt like he was just taking the piss out of it with that um, Eddie Murphy stuff. I thought that contributed nothing other than to uh, essentially make fun of Michael Jackson. So I very much enjoyed the contemporaneous footage that we'd not seen before. I love that uh, Haven Hurst stuff. And I loved that footage, the, you know, the live performance footage. Incredible, incredible. The uh, the footage of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Working day and night. And there was another song as well where I was watching. I was just thinking, this is unbelievable. They need to put this out on DVD. And, uh, and that's the other thing that's galling, really, is the fact that 
they're putting out this documentary which is like largely rubbish and no it's not largely rubbish it's, it's about 33 percent rubbish and then the stuff that's actually good they could have just released on its own without making a documentary so it's also a waste of time um so my message to sony and the michael jackson estate is i don't want the documentary i want the concert please can we have the concert on dvd because it is of a lot more value in my opinion the eddie murphy thing I understand when they referenced it, and I sort of thought that was cool how they referenced it, and but it went on far too long, and the way it ended, it did sort of slightly like leave a bad taste. It wasn't, didn't seem at the end the way they edited it, just made it didn't seem very respectful in a way. They just dragged it out for far too long, when I would rather have just watched. The tiny, yeah, oh yeah, Eddie Murphy acknowledged, you know, and used this in his routine, and it was hilarious. But then show Michael singing that track on tour or in the studio or in the video or whatever instead. Yeah. How about you, Andy? Yeah, look, the, the Eddie Murphy moment, I know that's the routine from Raw that kind of everybody knew. So referencing that within that context, I got... Where they ended it, that was the end of the routine. So, you know, there's there's not more to say on that. I I agree. I mean, there's there's when I can understand what Spike was trying to do with it in terms of with contemporary artists, and he tried it with Bad Twenty Five, trying to show the legacy of of Michael in these artists. But we kind of know that. We kind of know it in their performances, in the way that they sing, in how Chris Brown dances, and how The Weeknd sings, and how Justin Timberlake moves. It's kind of evident. I don't know whether you need to keep propping up the legacy of and look how impactful he still is. I think what you can do is really focus on the importance of that album in both Michael's career but also in the 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 time period that it was, you know, it was the end of the disco era. This was kind of the first hybrid disco moving on post disco sort of album that really took off. Um, and it was a, a starting point for, you know, this artist that we all are still gravitating to. So I think more contextualization uh, around the, uh, the actual recording process, the album's impact and, and its knock-on effect in terms of cultural impact, I don't need to see, you know, the artists of today kind of talking about it. Agreed. And, and and I would add that if even if you are going to get contemporary artists, then it would be of value, in my opinion, to get artists who have at least demonstrated some sort of longevity and staying power. If you're going to interview Beyonce and Justin Timberlake and uh, Alicia Keys, as somebody mentioned already, people like that people who have already had long careers, then that's one thing. But when you've got The weekend popping up, I mean, The weekend has been famous for like a year. I had no idea two who years. he was. No, not, yeah. true, not true at all. He's been around for, he's, he released three EPs prior to his last album, which was Kiss Land. Then he released this album. He's, you know, he's been popular and successful within certain segments of the music market. Obviously, this new album catapulted him further but he's all you know his first track on his first ep ever was the cover version of dirty diana um so he is not a, a johnny come lately who's just going oh yeah michael jackson was an influence he's someone who obviously has 
through his career kind of been influenced by Michael. Oh, he's he's a Michael Jackson impersonator. If you watch him perform live, his whole act is just an impersonation of Michael Jackson. It's it's embarrassing, I think, when you watch him perform live. But you know, he's not in. He, okay, so he's been popular in in niche circles for a while, but he's he's nowhere near the level of credibility and longevity of somebody like Beyonce. You know, I just don't see the value in 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 gathering up just anybody who happens to be in the top 10 this week because the, the chances are in two years they're not going to be in the top 10 you if you're trying to cement michael jackson's legacy then the way to do that is to is to uh use established credible uh long long time popular artists you know so coldplay for instance coldplay have been massive for what nearly 20 years now and um and they cite off the wall I believe in multiple interviews as their greatest inspiration, um, or the or the album which has most impacted their sound. I think, and so when you're including people like The Weeknd, but you're not seeking out Beyonce and you're not seeking out Chris Martin and other people like that, it just to me is poor. And I think you'd be better off including nobody than including The Weeknd, who really contributes nothing to the documentary. As as a yeah. lot of the talking heads did, I've got a, I've got a lot of respect for the weekend. I think he's got incredible music, and like Andy's saying, I've listened to many of his albums, and especially I was most excited about him when he brought those three EPs out, and I loved his Dirty Diana cover on on the on one of those EPs, and um, I think he's a great artist. My 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 concern is that well, as a as a person watching this documentary, I don't want to see contemporary artists at all on there. I don't want to see people that weren't connect, contextually connected to the album's recording. I get that you can talk about it from the point of view of them being influenced by the album, and that's cool, and it's cool to have Beyonce on there, and it's cool to have The Weeknd on there, and they get Michael's name out to new markets. But I don't actually care about that because I'm not learning anything new about the album or that time period. I want to see Rod Temperton on there talking about writing the songs. Yeah. I want to see Janet Jackson and Randy Jackson on there talking about recording the demos in Havenhurst. That's what I want to see. There's none of that. Yeah, and actually, you've just made a very good point. You've just talked about the the purpose of the new artists being to get Michael's music out to new markets. That's exactly what this is. This is not a documentary. It's an advert. Just like the Grammy thing is not a tribute. It's an advert. The whole thing is marketing. It's, it's of no substance, this documentary, really. The only stuff that's of substance is the contemporary... Uh, footage, the contemporaneous stuff of Quincy, of Michael, of the performances, that stuff is all phenomenal. But aside from Gamble and Huff and a few other people, Suzanne DePass and uh, maybe a, a handful of others, she was yeah, good, they, yeah, those people, they contributed something uh, valuable, which was information, context, whereas the majority of the talking heads really did just offer nothing beyond trivial superficial opinions and the only reason they're included in my opinion is as a marketing tool that's exactly what this documentary is it's an advert it's a, a 90 minute advert for a product which has been on sale for over 30 years yeah i really loved 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 the footage from yeah just like you know learning about you know the whiz and michael's visits to studio 54 uh, interview from Studio 54. I was going back further, the Motown yeah. 
stuff. Like I think that whole first half could easily stand as a documentary on its own. Yeah. Especially with like people like Suzanne DePass and Barry Gordy, Gamble and Huff, like, you know, going from Jackson 5, transitioning through to the Jacksons era before branching off. That could be at least an hour and a half, two hour documentary alone and pad it out with those people even further and, and get into, you know, more interactions and education that Michael was going through. And then the off the wall part, it felt quite rushed. Mm. Like I don't mind mm. the song by song breakdown format of the documentary, but they don't, they skip over so many songs so quickly that you, before you know it, you're in the next one. You go, well, hang on, I haven't actually learned a single thing about that track. I want to hear, yeah, like you said, from Rob Tempton, the writers and, and other producers who worked on it, demo stuff, they didn't do any of that. I was like, well, I, I just felt like, felt like I wanted more. They sort of breezed over so much stuff that I felt like I just was, not that I was unsatisfied, but I was left hungry for more. So much that, but the footage was the saving grace for me, like seeing the footage from those eras and yes, the quality is what it is, but that's fine. I will pay for that quite happily. Put it on Blu-ray. I will pay for that so happily. And that's, that's exactly for Charles, like his opinion. That's what I want. It was like, thank you for this. It was good. And for new fans, I think they will really love it and they will learn some stuff, definitely. I think new fans might learn some things, especially from the, the contemporary artists. They might not know who Rosie Perez is or things like that. But the positive from this, and I, and I can't stress this enough, is the footage that they did include and somewhat tease us with. It's like, oh, my God, what I wouldn't give for pretty much any of that and all of it on some sort of format that I could pay for quite happily. Oh my God. Like it's like, stop teasing us and just give us stuff like that, please. Well, I think you'll probably get that with the uh, Jackson's live 40th anniversary <laughs> uh, reissue with a, with a triumph tour in a, what is it going to be? 2021, I guess. <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed. Like don't get my hopes up, but Oh, my God, that would be incredible if that was the case. I like the little yeah. snippets of footage in there, like um, not necessarily the big performances, although they were amazing, but I remember seeing some footage in there. I think it was backstage at Motown 25 or something where Michael was being interviewed, and it was like, oh, I just couldn't believe how high quality it was. I was watching it in 1080p, and it was footage from like the very early 80s and or late 70s, and it looked incredible. So crisp. I think it might have been a news crew or something interviewing Michael and his brothers. I think that might have been from the Triumph Tour. It looked yeah. like it might have been backstage at the Triumph Tour. Yeah, he had a similar shirt to what he was wearing in Motown 25, but okay. I don't think it was Motown 25. It was sequined and it was kind of collared like that. But, yeah, it was um, yeah, really exciting to see that footage, like you saying. It's also, it's also interesting for me because I obviously watched it when it premiered here on Showtime. So actually having that sensation of watching it, knowing there are other people throughout the country kind of tuning in as well at the same time, that shared experience potentially heightened it versus, you know, watching it isolated hours later. Or So it's interesting to, to hear other people's point of view on the actual viewing experience of, of watching it 
it's like, I guess, separate to, to going to a concert and experiencing it with, you know, 30,000 people and as opposed to going to watch the live DVD at home, you know, a week later. Mm. I just wonder, what, because my take was it was, you know, definitely a step up from, from Bad 25 and an enjoyable thing and I actually came away kind of buzzed to, to kind of, you know, continue to l- listen to the album. But, yeah, I just wonder within that kind of live broadcast format, whether the listeners potentially enjoyed it more because there was live tweeting, there was this, there was that, there was a whole kind of more community feel again versus, you know, just watching it off YouTube or a rip somewhere else. It would be really great to like live tweet with people, like everyone get a hashtag and and, and it'll comments on Facebook or something and, and do that. I think that would really add something to it. As we found out recently when uh, Carly we did a live tweet of Moonwalker viewing. It was a very spur-of-the-moment thing, but mm. it was really, really good fun. My God, I'd love to just be sitting there live-tweeting the Triumph concert. Oh, my God. <laughs> so overall, I, I thought think, it was um, good, but it could have been really stellar. Yeah, it was. I think it was um, – curiously, see, what I want more of is, is uh, information rather than opinion – and yes. Bad 25 included a lot more information from direct contributors when you think about the number of people who were involved in the creation of that album. But the problem with Bad 25 was that it was so lumpen and it was almost the opposite. So whereas in this documentary, they'd be halfway through talking about a song and then it would almost jump cut to suddenly talking about a different song. This is the off-the-wall documentary. It was like, well, I'm, I'm interested to hear, actually, that it was originally two hours and it was cut down to 90 minutes because it seems that in hindsight, yeah, that makes sense because it looks like chunks were just cut out almost, um, uh, you know, almost at random. I mean, you, they would literally be halfway through talking about a song and then just suddenly they're talking about something else. But in Bad, it was the other way where you, I mean... Uh, uh, I think they spent almost half an hour talking about the bad video and uh, not only talking about the bad video, but acting like it was like fucking mean streets or something, <laughs> acting like it was like the greatest film that's ever been made. And you just going, what are you talking about? And um, so it's kind of gone to the other extreme. I think it's definitely, it's definitely more watchable than bad 25 because bad 25 just became uh, you know, almost like you were being tortured because it was so long and it spent so long dealing with things, like unnecessarily long amounts of time dealing with minor things. And this has gone the other way. And I actually thought the song-by-song format, as you've commented on, some of you, it if that does not work as a format if you're going to ignore some of the songs because what it does, it looks like you're dismissing half of the album. That was the way this documentary came across to me there were songs that were dealt with in like 30 seconds. And that's almost like saying, oh yeah, that song's rubbish. That's not worth talking about. So to me, it seemed to dismiss what are for me, some of my favorite songs on the album, like it's the falling in love and burn this disco out. And um, it, 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 they almost seem to be saying at one point in the documentary, yeah, the first half of the album's really good. And then the rest is a bit shit. That was, you know, when you had the various people saying, oh, as a DJ, you've got these four songs, whatever it is. And uh, I was thinking, well, why are you not playing as a, as a DJ? Why are you not playing Burn This Disco Out? It kind of it felt to me very rushed in places and like uh, and and dismissive of 
quite a large proportion of the album, actually. All right, so uh, the documentary should be coming out for pur- purchase pretty uh, shortly. It comes out in combination with the album release. Uh, many people would have seen it already, obviously, during that Showtime airing, but if you live in an international market and were not able to catch it on Showtime and haven't downloaded it dodgily like some of us, then you'll be able to uh, grab a legitimate copy of it uh, in connection with the Off the Wall release, Blu-ray or DVD, depending on your preference. Jamin, Jamin, also, if you, I know this is in Australia, if you pre-order your copy of Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall CD DVD, you get an exclusive invitation to a promotional VIP fan screening. That's so right. You've, Yes, if you pre-order your copy through eventcinemas.com.au, which is an Australian chain, you'll receive a ticket to attend the exclusive fan screening, uh, which is on Thursday, the 25th of February at 7 p.m. I guess if you went to that site, it would tell you which uh, are participating cities and cinemas across Australia. Sounds very exciting. That's the same night as the Prince concert in Perth. So hopefully I might have a ticket to that instead. (laughs) All right. So finds of the week. Uh, Q, do you want to go first? You want me to go first? Yeah, do it. I'm really curious what yours is. All right. Have you guys got Google in front of you? Yes. I have heard of that. The Googles. If you access the Googlies and if you type in the most beautiful... Smile in the world and hit images. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Isn't that cool? There's a lot of Michael. A lot. But there's also Ariana Grande, so, you know. I know, but <laughs> that's a, there's a lot of Michael. There's a lot of Michael. That's awesome. That was my find of the week. That's a cool find, Q. I know, right? I was like, I saw it somewhere. Someone mentioned it. And I was like, hang on, let me try that. And I was like, whoa. And Janet's in there as well. Yep. They got very similar smiles. Jackson's represent. Yeah. But how cool is that? Yeah. So good. Love that find. There you go. Interactive 3D Google find (laughs) of the week. (laughs) All right. So next find, Andy. Okay, so this is something which um, by the time everyone's listening, they've probably watched a million times, but as of uh, a couple of hours ago, it just got released, another leak. Uh, It's the Michael Jackson Luomo Vogue making of uh, on YouTube. You can search it. It's on uh, MJ Beats Rare Stuff. Get the fuck out of here. Are you serious? It goes, let me put it in context. It goes for one minute and 35 seconds. But what's great is you actually see the, the, uh, a couple of, the, the photo shoots with Michael um, and they're playing his music, him dancing to it. So you've seen the photos, you now get to see how those photos were created. So you'll know the poses from, from all the, uh, the shoots that came out. Uh, but now you get to see, okay, he was dancing to Childhood during that or he was dancing to Don't Stop Till You Get Enough during that. or It's very cool, so uh, check yeah. it out. I'm sure you guys will link to it on your uh, show notes. Yes. Oh, my yeah, God. I can't wait to see it. That's the find of the week from me. Very, Thank very you. Cool awesome. Thanks for breaking that news to me as well because you haven't even put it in the, the text here. <laughs> so that's exciting. Charles. 
Okay, I've got two quick ones, and they've both been inspired by what we've been talking about tonight. So firstly, when we were talking about the Joseph Fiennes thing, um, I was reminded, and please don't take this as a recommendation, I'm just offering it as a curiosity. There is a hideous film uh, from 2007 called Mr. Lonely. I don't know if any oh, of you have ever seen it. And it's, I know about uh, this film. It's Diego Luna, and he plays a Michael Jackson impersonator who goes and lives on uh, a commune where all of the inhabitants are celebrity impersonators, and he's living with Marilyn Monroe, uh, James Dean, Shirley Temple, uh, Charlie Chaplin, the Three Stooges, and a bunch of others. It is an unbelievably awful film, in my opinion. I, I, I watched it, and I was like, "What? Why have I just watched this?" But um, anyway, if if you if you have got a few hours to kill, and you're on Xanax, then um, maybe try Mister Lonely. And then the other thing, just talking about uh, talking heads. I think that there was a documentary which came out a few years ago which used talking heads to incredible effect because the talking heads were all so well-placed to offer their uh, recollections. And that was David Guest's uh, documentary, Life of an Icon. And the first, um, I, I, I don't remember how long it is, maybe the first hour, because he hits a wall when Michael goes into adulthood because he was banned from using any of Michael's adult music or performance footage. So, uh, But up, up to that point, the documentary is incredible. It's, it's basically the most kind of in-depth, forensic, but uh, warm and emotive recollection of Michael's years as a childhood uh, star that I've ever seen with contributions from so many Motown uh, artists and people from back in the day. And uh, I really highly recommend that. Yeah. I've actually never seen that. I keep thinking about it, but I've never seen that doco. It's really good. Su like surprisingly it. good, yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Charles. Jamin. So my find of the week is a tiny little snippet of footage. It's probably the shortest video find of the week I've ever given. It's uh, another great little video on Lavelle Smith Jr.'s Instagram page. Uh, if you go there, you will see uh, a bit of footage from the MTV 1995 VMA rehearsals. Uh, and not the rehearsals where Michael's on stage with Slash uh, joking around, talking about slamming the guitar, which is also awesome footage. Um, but this is rehearsal footage from some dance studio somewhere. It's got like a wooden floor, like a dance studio. Michael's in costume and um, he's doing, he's rehearsing that line where in the show he talks about, I think he says something like, for those of you who like living dangerously, this one's for you. And he turns around and runs to the back of the dance studio. And it's such a small little tiny bit of footage, but I really love watching it because it, it showed me that Michael didn't just rehearse the dances and the dance steps and, the, and everything so hard, but he also rehearsed those little interludes and sometimes the things he said to a uh, to great extent as well. So it's just a fun little thing to watch, and I'll put it in the show notes if you want to see it. Oh, thank you, Lavelle. You always share awesome stuff on your Instagram. I love those. They're like some <laughs> of my favorite Instagram posts that I see come up. Yeah, totally. And there we go. That's our finds. His little commentary on the little paragraphs that he writes for it as well. You learn a bit. Yes. Very cool. All right. Hey. Yes. Andy and Charles, 
Thank yeah. you so much for being part of season two, episode one. But what is this? Yeah. Episode 24. 24. First episode of season two, episode 24 of the MJ cast. Thank you so much, Charles, for returning and for your discussion and opinions and expertise. And Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was so, so excited when Jamin said, guess what? We're going to be speaking with Andy. <laughs> So I was really, really, really thrilled, genuinely, and thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and you were awesome. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Excellent. Thank you, listeners, as well. So, Andy, uh, where can people find out about you online? Uh, so, yeah, uh, go to mj101series.com or on Twitter, mj underscore one underscore zero underscore one uh and uh yeah you can um find out all about the mj 101 series great and charles uh my website is www.charles-thompson which is t-h-o-m-s-o-n dot net uh but i've not updated it for probably over a year so apologies for that but you can find a lot of my um court reports and uh that sort of thing on that website including my stuff on michael Awesome, thank you. And of course, the MJ Cast. You can find us at themjcast.com, which is where we have all of our show notes and all of our latest episodes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes by simply searching the MJ Cast in the iTunes podcast library. Uh, we're also on social media on Twitter at the MJ Cast, Instagram at the MJ Cast, Facebook at facebook.com slash the MJ Cast. We're at Tumblr at, oh no. <laughs> TheMJCast.tumblr.com TheMJCast.tumblr.com And am I forgetting? YouTube. Yes, I am. YouTube uh, slash plus TheMJCast. You guys are breaking the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and we would love to hear from listeners. We had some awesome emails over the break. Um, but if you do want to email us uh, feedback on today's show, thoughts and opinions, TheMJCast at iCloud.com dot com is how you can reach us via the interweb emails um speaking of mailbag wendy baker verna gold jack from vancouver shout out sue collins from pittsburgh david manley andrew johnson karen o'halloran jason garcia and alejandra herter thank you so much for emailing us uh, over the break we had a uh, obviously a lot of mail there and if i've missed anyone thank you so much also but um yeah loved getting those emails some of them are incredible oh, oh yeah. my god david manley talking about his puppeteer career his puppeting career yes oh. and a real little mystery picture that he shared with us of a captain eo maquette that was yes. on display uh, in the Imagination Pavilion in the theatre lobby uh, back in the premiere week of Captain EO back uh, in Epcot Centre. So that I actually put up and um, if anyone has a look in our pictures on Twitter at least, you will see that. And if yes. you have any information on it, let us know because I even shared it with a Disney uh, park historian and they'd never seen anything like that. So it'd be great to get a good quality photo of that maquette or even know where it is now. So thank you so much for that, David. Also, thank you to um, Vera, of course, for all that you're doing. Um, support you big time. Thank you to our survey respondents as well. We did the survey during the break, which, of course, we announced in the last episode of season one. 
And for those hundred odd people that participated, thank you so much. We very much appreciate your time, your 15 minutes that you gave to us. And we learnt a lot and we are going through that feedback and we'll be, yeah, implementing what we agree with. Absolutely. So there we go. That's our premiere episode of season two done and dusted thank you so much listeners for tuning in and listening to the mj cast again we'll have another show out in a fortnight's time this season's going to be very exciting lots of shows to keep you updated on michael jackson news and of course lots of specials in the works as well with uh, people who knew and worked with michael jackson uh, hope you guys have a really enjoyable fortnight ahead and we look forward to talking about michael jackson and the jackson family with you guys again on the next episode of the mj cast make sure to keep michaeling thank you guys thank you jamin thank you andy and thank you charles michael on that's a wrap
We'd also like to just give a very special thank you to none other than friend of the show, Remixed by Nick. Nick is an incredible remix artist who has covered a lot of Michael Jackson's material, right from his earlier tracks through to some of his most recent, for example, Threatened from Invincible. Lately, Nick's turned his attention to remixing Michael Jackson's late 70s material for the amazing album Off The Wall. On this episode, we've played two amazing examples of Nick's work, including his Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and Off The Wall remixes. Make sure you check him out on his YouTube channel or some of his other social media websites. You can find Nick's work at a range of places, including his very own website, remixedbynick.blogspot.com. You can also track him down at facebook.com slash remixedbynick, Twitter at remixedbynick, Tumblr at remixedbynick.tumblr.com, and of course YouTube at youtube.com slash user slash remixedbynick. Don't miss out enjoying Remixed by Nick's amazing work. Check him out today. You're going to love what he's got to offer. Thanks, Nick, and keep Michaeling.